Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast that we host. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Uh, I write for The Rap. I write for The Film Verdict. I write for Slash Film, and everybody calls me Bibs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I contribute to Slash Film. Uh, and we're going to review uh, two weeks worth of movies this week. Oh, and it was a busy couple of weeks. Yeah, we have a lot of catching up to do. Now, um, la- last week would have been trim. Yes, uh, that's why. We, that's why we actually decided not to go last week because it was like it's like maybe two. Like, movies. We've seen maybe two movies. We'll just save it for next week, and then and, it turns and then, out. Yeah, and then we ended up mistake. like seeing six additional films. Was, so we got a lot to cover this week. All right. So this week on critically acclaimed, dear God. Okay, we're reviewing uh, the Exorcist, Believer, uh, Saw X. We saw ten. So, whatever. It, it's not Saw X, it's Saw 10. Do you remember in well, the X- I, Of course, you, I refer to Henry V as Henry V. Do you remember you know, in the X-Men comics, in the X-Men comics, they kept talking about, like, Wolverine was Weapon X, uh-huh. and then Grant Morrison said, actually, he was Weapon 10. And, <laughs> that was which, a big reveal. Which they, they played with in, like, yeah. the movies, because there was, yeah. like, a Weapon 11 at one point. Yeah, yeah, and... it was fun. Uh, let's see, and then there's, uh, so there's two sci-fi, uh, two horror sequels, then we have a new sci-fi film called The Creator, uh, we have William Friedkin's final film, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, uh, four, four short films released to Netflix, directed by Wes Anderson, adapting classic short stories by Roald Dahl, uh, the horror comedy Totally Killer, the horror absolutely not a comedy in any way when evil lurks, uh, <laughs> can't wait to hear about that one, Dicks, the musical, which I suspect probably is a comedy, uh, and something called Foe. F-O-E, Foe. Okay. Not not the uh, delicious soup. Yes, nor is there any sort of pa involved. Uh, and uh, <laughs> those are the movies that we're reviewing this week on Critically Acclaimed. Mm. By God, there are a lot of them. So let's just dive right in, because you know us, we like to talk. Uh, it, it's why we're here. It is, really, yeah. We would be having, here's the fun fact, we would be having all of these conversations anyway if there was no microphone. More or less. This is kind of kind of what our conversations is, about these movies would be like. Yeah, if you're ever wondering, like, what's it really like to hang out with Bibbs and Whitney? This is exactly what this, it's this, like, this actually. Is, this is it, yeah. Yeah, we, we might not be sitting at this table. Like, that's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally the only difference. Anyway, um, The Exorcist Believer is uh, probably the biggest film that we both saw yeah. this week. Which uh, is the fifth or perhaps sixth movie in the series. Yeah. Depending so, on how you count the counting. Yeah, and honestly, the, there's even arguably more than that. So there was The Exorcist. Hmm. Oscar winning film Considered one of the greatest horror movies ever made right. One of the greatest 50, movies ever made 50 years old this year 50 years old 1973 Blumhouse uh, doing their thing They released uh, Halloween hmm. Like on it, like, what was it like, It's the 40th anniversary It was the 40th anniversary yeah. of Halloween Yeah, It was 78 to yeah. 2018 Nice uh, But uh, yeah So The Exorcist Classic film uh, Shortly after The Exorcist Only a few years after The Exorcist Which was one of the biggest hit films of all time uh, they released uh, Exorcist to the Heretic, directed uh, by John Borman. Yeah, who is who is considered you know not as talked about nowadays as William Friedkin, but was considered like a great filmmaker mm. uh, in his day. Well, I know uh, he did a, f- a film you're very fond of called Excalibur. Yeah, which is uh, a little atypical for him actually, mm-hmm. but he does this incredibly sumptuous, sexual, violent King Arthur epic. Uh, that, to my way of thinking, is still the gold standard in King Arthur movies. Okay. Um, there's a lot of different interpretations. A lot of them are valid. But for me, I think that's the closest anyone's come to getting it right. Um, 
But yeah, so the Exorcist story of a girl who was possessed by a demon, or was she? Uh, and uh, the um, it's based on a novel by William Peter Blatty. Which, yeah, which I've read and I like a lot. Yeah, it's um, great. It's very faithful because he wrote yeah. the screenplay. <laughs> he wrote the screenplay, and yeah, he stuck to his guns. Like yeah. the, the the movie actually pretty much just takes things out of the book because yeah. the book was too long. Not uh, much, though. Like, no, you'd be but surprised uh, by how little. Like, yeah. uh, There's a little bit more depth with some of the supporting characters. Yeah, like uh, the, the cop character, Kinnaman, yeah. uh, played a, a slightly larger role in the book. But, as uh, did uh, Father... Um, Father Dyer. As did Father Dyer, yeah. who we see in the movie, he's like the fun priest mm. who's like playing the piano at a party. Yeah, he's, he, he, heaven is I'm the headliner. Like, yeah. that, that was... Yeah, yeah. He's, he has more to do in the book, but... Basically, other than that, it's the exact same story. Um, one of my favorite bits of trivia that's in the book that never made it into the movie is um, uh, Ellen Burstyn, who played uh, the mother whose daughter, uh, played Belinda Blair, was possessed. Uh, she's a famous actor mm-hmm. in that movie, and she is in town where they're, where her daughter in, gets possessed. In Georgetown. She, yeah. yeah, Georgetown, uh, filming a movie. And we see a scene in that movie of her filming that movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's like some big like student protest thing. Mm-hmm. And that's all we see in the movie. We don't know nothing else about it. Uh, in the book, it is explicitly codified, and they include these scenes. These scenes were added to it, like the scenes that we see in the movie. So I know it's the same film. Musical remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Which they joke about. And, but in the movie, like that line of dialogue uh-huh. is in the screenplay, but the actors deliver it as if it's sarcastic. Yeah. Like, what are we doing? Uh, I don't know. Musical remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah, well, in the book, it's explicitly exactly yeah. what they're doing. Um, but uh, anyway... There's a big exorcism stuff happens. There's uh, you, you've probably seen or at least heard of the exorcist, so we'll, we'll keep that simple and short. Um, <laughs> and if you haven't, you should. It's well, brilliant. It, it's brilliant, and also it set uh, it didn't just set a standard; it kind of created a whole subgenre. Yeah, uh, there are few films more imitated and ripped off than The Exorcist. Uh, uh, Alien uh, and Emmanuel are like the only <laughs> ones that might have beaten it. I, I, I'm oh, pretty sure. Um, you know, they're coming it, out with a new Emmanuel. There's another. They, 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 yeah. I thought they stopped like in no, 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 like, or no, like a new classy big one too. Oh wow! Yeah, like, Emmanuel was this uh, uh, soft core sex film. Like uh, I forgot when the first one was. 1970. Oh uh, yeah, around uh, there. Around yeah. there, and um, yeah, it, it was you know just Diary of a Libertine Woman, the yeah, kind of sort of uh, sort of story. And it's 1974. All very, 74. Emmanuel came out, uh, and it like kicked off this whole subgenre of softcore smut movies that played the grand house uh, scene. But because those kinds of movies have fallen out of favor, you probably haven't seen a lot of the Emmanuel ripoffs. No. Uh, in the 90s, an actress named Krista Allen starred in eight mm-hmm. Emmanuel in space movies. Yes, because which were put out by Roger Corman. So, so I, I know about those movies. Yeah. I haven't seen them. <laughs> I haven't had the courage, but there are eight Emmanuel in Space movies. Uh, Alien, of course, yeah. you know, uh, astronauts. Leia Seydoux is going to star. <gasps> She's going to be Emmanuel? Uh, uh, no, actually, sorry, correction. She was going to star. Oh, okay. Now it's going to star uh, Nomi Merlant from oh, okay. Portrait of a Lady on Fire and um, mm-hmm. uh, Tar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it's going to be directed by Audrey Duan, who directed that awesome, uh, that amazing drama a couple years ago, Happening. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, So yeah. That's, okay. that's a hell of a pedigree. Okay, Actually, well, I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly, like, I'm, I'm, like, legitimately okay, now interested I see in that this movie. New Emmanuel it's not going to be it's Corman be, doing it. It's not going to be, like, a no, trashy movie. No. Anyway, uh, we should get back to the exorcist. But the, uh, the, <laughs> we you, get you, know, you know about the, the demonic possession. You know all yeah. the iconography of the demonic yeah. possession. Uh, the climax of the exorcist set the standard. And now every exorcism mm. has to involve 
a young girl tied to a bed. That's kind of part, or, or a child of some kind. If you've I seen remember, The Last um, Exorcist. I, I, know, a, a little earlier this year, I saw a film called The Pope's Exorcist, which yeah. was another one of these knockoffs, and Russell Crowe played The Exorcist, and lo and behold, there was a child tied to a bed, and the bed mm-hmm. floated around, and he spoke in a demonic voice. Yeah. They contort their bodies and climb around on the walls. It's incredibly cliched at this point. Yeah. And uh, you can, tr- I actually, as an experiment, went to Tubi, and typed in the word exorcism, mm-hmm. and there were, I'm not kidding, 49 movies, none of which I had heard of, sure. with the word exorcist or exorcism in the title. I don't doubt it whatsoever. There's one called Shark Exorcist. Now that one's awesome. W- which, why didn't they call it Sharkcercist? I was day? just yeah. thinking that. I wasn't going to say it. Yeah. Because I knew you'd roll your eyes whenever it's I like, do stuff like that, but it turns out you're worse than I am. Absolutely I okay. am. Okay. <laughs> I'm also mad that Lava Lantula, the, mm-hmm. the Lava Tarantula movie, uh-huh. was not called Tarantulava. That was sitting right there. Uh, anyway, The Exorcist. There was the Exor- <laughs> you mentioned The Exorcist 2, directed yeah. by John Borman. Then it's, Bill and Peter Blatty. Well, hold, hold on, real fast. We have to make make point that The Exorcist 2... Is is a huge stinker. It's, it's very, 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 very bizarre. They invent a whole bunch of sci-fi technology. They go it's into like this huge... It's like a hypnosis el- machine where people can share dreams. They go into this huge elaborate backstory about the demon that we really, really desperately did not need. And, and they um, made it racist. They kind of made it's, it racist, like, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm being yeah. possessed by an African demon. Uh-huh. We're gonna go is, way out of our way. White American paranoia uh-huh. now. Uh, there's oh, there, Martin Scorsese, and uh-huh. I'm not. I'm, I, I'm sure he has his reasons. Has gone on record saying he prefers the heretic. Well, because it's wild and weird. You know, yeah. he, he makes big, wild, energetic movies. Uh, William Friedkin is a very stead director, especially yeah. in that Exorcist. Everything's really quiet and kind of <laughs> deliberately paced. Uh, yeah, then in the early 90s, William mm-hmm. Peter Blattery, Blatty came back, wrote a screenplay, and directed The mm-hmm. Exorcist 3. Which is uh, really terrifying. Which, which is really good. Uh, he's yeah. imitating Friedkin. He's doing the same sort of pacing. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of really cool... Well, to be fair, Friedkin was doing Blatty. I suppose so, but... <laughs> yeah, to give, let's give credit where credit is due here. I suppose so. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah that, that one followed the cop. He was recast. He played by George C. Scott in, yeah, in uh, this uh, Exorcist 3. And really excellent, by the way. And it turns out there's like... Uh, someone's been possessed and they're killing people, but there's like... In, they, in a mental institution. They're in, they're in the institution and it's just like, oh my God, Brad Dorff is fucking incredible in that movie. <laughs> uh, like, should have been Oscar nominated in that movie. There's a couple of sequences. There's like two sequences in that movie. Actually, no, fuck that. Three. That I think are three of like the scariest scenes in any movie I've mm-hmm. ever seen. Just absolutely riveting tension. Yeah. Or just disturbing concepts. Um, I love that movie to pieces. There's a director's cut, mm-hmm. which I actually think doesn't work as well. I haven't seen the director's cut. I've I, only seen I, the theatrical. They, they threw in the actual exorcism part was oh. a studio mandate. Oh, okay. There wasn't supposed to be actually a priest showing up and at the last minute saying, oh, I exercise mm. you. Yeah. yeah. That was kind of tacked on. But also, without it, it kind of, the ending is kind of awkward. Uh. <laughs> like it kind of, there was one the studio note that might have actually helped a little. <laughs> but in any case, okay. it's a great movie either way. Uh, both versions are great. In the early uh, 2000s, we had The Exorcist, the version you've never seen, was released to theaters. That was an the alternate year, cut. The year 2000, yeah. Yeah. Not, not officially a director's cut. Freaking just says that's an alternate cut. Uh, and not, not as good as the original. It's not as good as the original. It's still good. And if you've only ever seen it, you probably appreciate mm. The Exorcist. But I don't think it's good as the original. 
Then we had the weird War of the Prequels, where well, they, they, uh, the studio hired Paul Schrader, yes, the writer uh, and Taxi Driver, to write and direct an Exorcist prequel about yeah. the uh, Max von Sydow character from the original, mm-hmm. who's now played by uh, Stellan Skarsgård as a younger man, mm-hmm. uh, and the first time he had encountered uh, this demon creature and he exercised a it. story that is hinted mm-hmm. at in both the book and the movie, but mm-hmm. never gone into any explicit yeah. detail. And yeah. Uh, Schrader's version actually came out second, but it was made first. And uh, oh, well, it was mostly made first. The studio no, saw it like the first. No, no, because it wasn't finished. Oh, I heard it was completely done. It was. There was a cut, but it wasn't finished. They didn't okay. do music. There was no visual effects. Okay. There was editing that still had to be done. Um, it was the first cut. The studio saw the first cut of this Exorcist movie that they paid for, and they freaked out because they. Basically, they wanted, wanted a scary movie. Yeah, they yeah. wanted a scary movie, so, so they uh, hired Rennie Harlan, <laughs> like the opposite of Paul Schrader. Yeah, Rennie Harlan, the director of Cliffhanger and Deep Blue Sea, who's made fun movies. I've liked some Rennie Harlan movies. It's just a weird about face. It's basically just like that indicates who the studio probably wanted to hire in the mm-hmm. first place. Uh, so they reshot the whole movie with Stellan Skarsgård in uh-huh. the same locations with the same sets. Yeah, there's like a, so it's bizarre. There's only like a very small percentage of the movie that's the same shots or anything uh. like that very weird um the movie that came out of it is awful yeah the exorcist the beginning was yeah. the rennie harlan version it doesn't make sense first. it's it, it's, the, it's square, the scares are terrible the visual effects are terrible um and it was it was a mess and everyone hated it and the whole thing about the studio kind of screwing over paul schrader that became the narrative mm. that's all anyone knew so the studio begrudgingly said Fine, you can finish your movie, but they gave him like I, I'm I'm ballparking this number. I looked it up once, like twenty thousand dollars to do all of post. Yeah, like no 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 money at all essentially. Yeah, yeah, so he had to reuse the score from the movie he didn't he wanted to be nothing like. He had to reuse the Rennie mm-hmm. Harlan score. Uh, had to re-edit it all like last post. And the few visual effects scenes that are in the movie mm-hmm. are even worse than the than the beginning. Uh, yeah. They look terrible, but. And that one was that, called. They released that as Dominion colon a prequel to The Exorcist. Yeah, uh, that version. There is there is a common uh, a narrative there, and I've I've perpetuated it because I remember when they both came out. Uh-huh. Uh, we all hated the Rennie Harlan version, but then it was like, okay, well, the Paul Schrader version's coming. It's coming to save us. It was the original Snyder cut. Um, and then the Schrader version came out, and for the most part, people were like, oh, that's not very good either. Yeah. Uh. In fact, I've actually said a few times that if you would ask me which one I'd rather watch, it would be the Rennie Harlow one because it's more eventful. I rewatched both of those movies earlier this year for an article I wrote on Slash Film. Um, yeah, I was I've wrong. I've watched them since the theater. Yeah, so. I was wrong. Okay. The Rennie Harlan version is terrible. <laughs> the Paul Schrader version is mostly great. I don't know how different a person I was when that movie came out, but I must have been a very different person because it is... Uh, sinister and insightful and creepy as hell and the things that undermine it are mostly clearly production issues uh it's actually very very good i consider it the other good exorcist movie okay Uh, so if you if you've never seen it you've only ever heard it was bad or if you haven't seen it since it came out i encourage a rewatch because dominion is you know you know it's it's an imperfect film by definition just dint of the way it was created yeah um but it's a lot better than it gets credit for. Okay. 
I'm gonna give it credit for that. Um, and then it's been like another 20 years since yeah, we've had we um, had a TV series which I saw a little t- bit of and I heard it was very good was but I never TV, got into a it. A TV series which I yeah I didn't see. There was a yeah. stage production for yeah, uh, that yeah, was touring for a while. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, now we're finally back around to Blumhouse doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doing essentially they're repeating the same formula they did with uh, John Carpenter's Halloween movies. Yeah. Uh, they hired David Gordon Green mm-hmm. to write and direct with his usual crew that he mm-hmm. writes with, and uh, so that's Danny McBride and uh, the other other guy. guy. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll look it up He's and uh, and they hired him to make not one but three films they're gonna do yes, like a whole David trilogy is gonna do three movies they uh, paid sort of 400 million dollars for the rights to the, to the yeah. series and, and uh, they, Peter Sattler and also Peter Scott Sattler. Teams that worked on the story oh, okay. as well so, yeah. but the screenplay itself is that it is credited to Peter Sattler and David Gordon Green right. Teams and McBride co-wrote the story with Green alright uh, and just like with Halloween, mm-hmm. uh, David Gordon Green is fighting an uphill battle here mm-hmm. uh, because not only is he has to add on to sort of the mythology of the original series, uh, just like in Halloween, he's only paying any kind of heed to the original movie. All the sequels didn't mm-hmm. happen. Um, th- uh, nothing actually explicitly contradicts them, though. So if you want to, if not, you're really but... attached to three or Dominion or even yeah. Heretic, There's... you can kind of say they still happen. There's really nothing. No, that no, no reference. To There's those no reference. Movies, though, but yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but so not only does he have to sort of tie it into those, but he's fighting an entire tide of endless imitators that came after both of those movies. There were yeah. a lot of slasher movies in the wake of Halloween, a lot of exorcism movies since The Exorcist. Yeah, uh, which means he has to do something. Yeah, to make this stand apart from the thousand imitators that have mm-hmm. come since then. And you know what? He doesn't do it. No, uh, there are better, more interesting. Exorcist knockoffs mm-hmm. than this straight up sequel, Exorcist yeah. Believer. The big gimmick, the thing mm-hmm. that they came up with that's like, here's what's going to do. Because, you know, it's a sequel. You don't want to do the exact same thing someone's done before. You want to, you know, throw in a new element, a bit of chaos, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, whereas The Exorcist was about uh, a girl who was possessed by a demon, The Exorcist Believer is about two girls possessed by demons at the same time. Yeah, possibly the same demon. So, Hard to say. So two for one. Yeah, so it's a so it's a it's double trouble, uh, and uh, well, that's about it, really. That's kind of like the big the big ship. Well, yeah. actually, no, that's that's not true. Actually, there's, well, there's there's one other element that I think is well, thematically uh, significant, which is yeah. the attempt to uh, the original Exorcist and it's most of its knockoffs and sequels uh, were very Catholic. Yeah, by definition, that was the the their focus. Was on Catholic uh, Catholic exorcism. Why did I say it like that? Um, and uh, most exorcist movies tend to have those Catholic uh, traffic. You know, the power of Christ compels you. Holy water, all that kind of stuff. Crucifixes. You, yeah. you, you can't get. You know, a Baptist isn't going to come in and exercise a demon. Right. And but and what David Gordon Green's film attempts to to tackle mm. is the idea that you know, exorcist was about like what if religion was necessary in our increasingly secular world. Uh, David Gordon Green's film seems to be about, well, what is what would an exorcism be like in a non-denominational world mm. where people believe in things, but they don't all believe in the same thing, but they also believe that this these kids shouldn't be possessed. Yeah. Can we find a way, kind of can find common ground, which is weirdly well, lovey-dovey for an exorcist kind of vibe, you know? Like, it's sort also, of like uh, the power of friendship. It's it's also really strange for David Gordon Green, who's made a lot of movies about small town communities. Mm-hmm. And um, my guess is David Gordon Green and all of his screenwriters feel very ambivalent 
at best mm. about organized religion. They don't really seem to have a point of view. Uh, so they're only they do not, no. the only real concept they have to en- to sort of put into this equation, which is not explored. It's just sort of like mentioned and glossed over in a greeting card sort of way, mm-hmm. is that uh, church, regardless of your denomination or, mm-hmm. or just whatever your belief system is. Yeah. Because there's also like herbalists <clears throat> in, in, in mixed yeah. in with this. And like uh, there's some Haitian holy imagery. Mm-hmm. Um no matter what your faith or your belief practices, it's not about the belief so much as it is about the community it, it allows you to belong to. Yeah. And had the movie been about the community. Yeah, see, that's you what they like, it up. You know, like what he did in Halloween Ends? Yeah. Which is actually all about Haddonfield and the community. And mm-hmm. re- and even Halloween Kills, a movie I hate. Yeah, but it is about, all, the it's about the community. about the community. It's, it's so about know, Haddonfield more than anything else. And, yeah. and did you see Snow Angels? That's also very much about the community. I actually didn't see Snow Angels, um, but I've seen his other movies. Yeah, or, or, and he has Undertow, done... Like, he's done yeah. a lot of these really wonderful movies about small town communities. George Washington's <clears throat> first movie. Sure. It was all about these groups of people living in a small town. He doesn't do any of that in a movie that is ostensibly about community. Yeah. Uh, so it feels it, like it, was, it feels like it was the the concept was tailor made to his strengths, mm. and then he decided to I'm gonna do just do some sh- knockoff shtick, schlocky shtick. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, let me look up the actresses because you know. To oh yeah, give, the, give the, the, the younger actors are really really yeah. good. So it stars Leslie Autumn Jr. as a man named Victor. Mm. Uh, he is a photographer. He's a single father. His wife died in the the yeah, earthquake, earthquake in Haiti, yeah. which is. You know, really huge real life tragedy to try to you know throw in at the beginning of the movie, um, and uh, his wife was pregnant uh, during the earthquake. Uh, she gets injured, and he has to basically decide. The doctors say we can't save them both, mm. and so we cut two years later. He's living with his daughter. She's wonderful. Mo- yeah, mom's dead. Uh, yeah, yeah she- she's played by Lydia Jewett, uh, and uh, her friend at school is named Catherine. She's played by Olivia Margam. I've never seen either of these actors before. They're both very, very talented. Although I think Olivia Markham is is now going by a different name. Uh, I could be. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia uh, okay. page. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I apologize. Uh, I th- she's credited as Olivia Markham, but okay. I think if, if you want to look her up, I think it's like Olivia Taylor now. Um, that happens a lot with but, uh, actors just starting yeah. out. You switch your name early on, but yeah, fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, the the. Lydia Jewett character is her name. The character is named Angela. Get a it? A little on the nose. Get it? Um, She's an angel. She and Catherine uh, are curious uh, about the occult. They go out into the, and I don't know why it's set this way, but they go out to the list like glade in the woods uh-huh. so they can engage in a seance. Just the two of them. They want to contact uh, Angela's mother, dead mother, yeah. and um, and then. We cut away and they're they're missing and there's yeah. a big panic they, and they, they try to find them. They, parents they, are looking for three days. Yeah, they're gone for three days and they mysteriously reappear and naturally they're possessed. Something yeah. happened in those three days. I I, I uh, want to say I want to talk about those three days real real mm-hmm. fast because there's arguably it's been argued by many people mm-hmm. long before I got to the film criticism community uh, that the scariest part of the Exorcist is not the exorcism part. Mm-hmm. It's the part of the movie where Ellen Burstyn doesn't know that her daughter is possessed and they take her to all kinds of doctor's appointments. And it's just basically someone you love, someone in your family, especially your child, is sick and you don't know why or how serious it is or if they'll ever get better. Mm. That is something that I, I hope, if you're listening to this, you've never had to deal with that. If you ever have, it's terrifying. That's very, very human. That's very, very real. The one part of this movie that I actually think hits pretty good is when he, I think David Gordon Green realizes... Not knowing where your kids are, they're supposed to come home, we don't know where they are now, is terrifying in itself. 
Mm-hmm. You do not need any supernatural element for that to be terrifying. And briefly, I think it's genuinely a little harrowing. A little bit during yeah. those sequences. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, they they show up again. They they begin behaving demonically overnight. And, like like over, there's yeah, no there's... suspense. There's no build up. It's just basically the next day. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we're evil now. And okay, cool. They, they showed up in a barn like three days later. And it's like I don't remember that. And my first instinct was, you've been abducted by aliens. That's missing time <laughs> stuff. Nobody mentions that. Uh, yeah, that would have been fun. But yeah, because that's some point. That's someone's religion. Uh, I <laughs> suppose so. That kind of conspiracy, yeah. you know. But. Uh, the fun thing about this movie is not only have we grown up in a, in the post exorcist universe yeah. where, you know, this movie that's influenced all the other movies, yeah. the characters in the movie have also grown up in a post exorcist mm-hmm. universe, kind of, even though there's no movie in their universe. So they all know exactly what's going on right away. There's no mystery for them. It's pretty quick. They're like, um, Oh, I, I think I know what this is. This is, this is demon stuff. We need yeah. to, we need to track down. And Dowd plays yeah. like a, a neighbor who also happens to be a nurse at the hospital. And the kid says something weird to her. And she's like, Oh, demon shit. Uh, mm. Here's a book that's been written by Chris McNeil Owen person's <laughs> character. She became an expert in exorcisms and has been giving lectures. Maybe she'll help you out. And this dad who so far in the movie has been completely, uh, just hysterical. Uh, like, well, he's just, been hysterical, yeah, but he's also been, he's also been extremely, uh, 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 kind of I was gonna say atheistic. Oh. Uh, he's he doesn't believe in anything. It's oh, you're talking about Les, Leslie Odom Jr. I'm talking about Leslie Odom Jr. Okay, he yeah. doesn't believe in religion at all. It's vaguely suggested, but never explicitly stated that you know, just before his wife died in this horrible tragedy that should never have happened, um, you know, she had had the, the child blessed, mm-hmm. uh, by, uh, by a, a local priest, by a local yeah. priest, yeah. Uh, and then look what happened. So maybe that's why, but that's mm-hmm. never explicitly said. Basically, just like people come in and say, Hey, we're praying for your family. It's like, Get out, I don't care about anything. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, oh, well, sh- we think she's possessed by a Catholic demon. Uh, here's a book written by an actress. And then he's like, yeah, okay, I guess I believe this now. Why? Well, it also plays it's into really, the, His whole journey is arbitrary. And the, the way atheism is treated mm-hmm. in a lot of these uh, very Catholic exorcism mm-hmm. movies is uh, people don't... Uh, people are born with faith, but they become atheists when they lose someone, when somebody in yeah. their life dies. It's not um, that it's not that you don't believe in God; is mm. that you believe in God, but you're mad at God. Yeah, you yeah. want to reject um, God as as a way of being a dick. Uh, it wouldn't have been keen if like there were some kind of actual discussion between people of faith and an atheist, yeah. and their uh, viewpoints and where they can meet and where they differ. Yeah. That kind, you know, the way faith actually operates in the real world. None yeah. of that in this movie. Uh, Instead, we get a cameo from Ellen Burstyn, who's 90 years old. Uh Uh, She never wanted to come back to this. Um, She said, said, they offered her money, she said no, and then she thought about it, and this is apparently true. Uh, She was like, I guess she like teaches or helped like start like a foundation for like, you know, like an acting kind of scholarship or uh something like that, and said, that price you offered me that was like way more than anyone deserves, give it, double it and give it to the scholarship. And they're like, yeah, okay. And she's like, okay, great, I'll do it. So, yeah, so she, good she, for you, Ellen she, Burstyn. She, so she comes back, Ellen Burstyn. She's yeah. still playing Chris McNeil again. Yeah, and uh, she's still talented. I mean, it's it's a crappy well, she, role. It's just exposition yeah. mostly, but like she's good. She, she's given nothing no. in this movie. They got Ellen Burstyn back, and they didn't give her anything exciting to do. And then uh, yeah. this is where I'm going to kind of yeah. l- let the surprises lie. But I will say that s- something really shocking happens in this movie mm-hmm. about halfway through. 
that you won't expect uh. and it's completely unearned no and is supposed to be this like shocking moment of like utter violence and but just it's kind of hilarious and you're just going to be giggling at how stupid because, that moment is because i think david gordon green suddenly realized like halfway through this movie mm. oh right it's a horror movie um so i'm going to horrific yeah, there's like two maybe three moments in this movie where David Gordon Green, it's like he loses confidence in the material. Like, it's The Exorcist. It's okay to treat it as a horror drama. Mm. Um, that's part of the expectation, I think. But, uh, no, it's like there's a couple of times in the movie where he pulls out, like, one really big shock or surprise or moment of violence that is, like, really just, like, bigger than anything we've seen before. It comes out of nowhere. The timing is, is always quasi-comedic. And it happens in situations and to characters who we weren't terribly invested in or didn't necessarily believe. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm not actually convinced that you're the character we, we need right now in this situation. So when it happens to them, it just feels like David Gordon Green is being playful in a story that is not playful at all. No. And it's no. just a jarring tonal disconnect. It's like that's It's not as bad as this, but it's like that scene in It Chapter 2 where all of a sudden a demon pukes on a guy. Oh, and they play Angel of the Morning. And play and Angel yeah. of the Morning and it comes out of nowhere and has not, the song has nothing to do with anything. It just... Every time I've seen that with an audience, the audience just laughs their asses off. <laughs> it was not scary at all. Well, what they call a bad laugh. Like, you're yeah. laughing at the movie rather than with it. it. And that's what I think happens a couple of times in Believer. But yeah, I think we should we should cut it off there, basically. Uh, Chris McNeil gets involved. They're gonna, there will be an exorcism yeah, eventually. And the, the, yeah, and then, then yeah. the climax of the movie is a two-for-one exorcism yeah. with all of the usual... Demonic stuff. stuff. There's a yeah. lot of CGI demon yeah. effects. It's there's a, there's one moment towards the end mm-hmm. where I, I I gotta be honest here. I started like checking out. It oh was yeah, so yeah, rote. It was not, so uninteresting. Not interesting at all. I was just losing. I, I was staying in it, but like the movie was not keeping my attention. And then one thing happened. One new little wrinkle uh-huh. happened, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, how are we gonna deal with this? sort of conundrum this this new development that that happens um and i'm like this this maybe this is what the whole movie was leading up to maybe this is going to justify the existence of the film and then uh no actually there's there's something just kind of randomly resolves in this arbitrary way the the the, i don't mean to say that like movies need to follow a formula but leslie autumn jr's character and he's a brilliant actor oh he's great yeah he's from hamilton You, you, you know him. he's incredibly talented um his character has one of the worst developed arcs <laughs> I've seen in any movie in well, a long, they, long time. They, like, they get in like a big ensemble, and then he just sort of vanishes into this ensemble. He vanishes. His whole raison d'etre thematically is to be a non-believer, right? Well, that changes arbitrarily midway through the movie. And then we learn a few more things about him. And then you're like, oh, okay, so his journey is based on these things that happened to him earlier that maybe we didn't know about or didn't understand fully. So he's going to eventually be put in a situation where his actions now will define him and show whether or not he has actually grown as a person. And then the opportunity to take those actions never materializes. Mm -hmm. And the movie just sort of happens around him instead. And it is so incredibly dissatisfying Here's the thing. This is I, I, we got to come up with a name for this because there's there's a type of movie that is really really frustrating where it's usually a movie with a lot of anticipation behind it, a sequel, a reboot, something you know, something people have 
some idea in their head of how good it's going to be. Mm. Um, where it's not good. Uh-huh. But it's not really the worst thing you've ever seen or anything like that. It's just not good. Like, it's, yeah. you, you, it's hard to praise. And what happens is, as always does, an embargo drops, Eld reviews come in at once. And it looks like, oh, not just like, oh, there's a bunch of negative reviews. It just looks like everyone hates this movie. Mm-hmm. And then everyone's sort of expectation for the movie goes from high, or at least hopeful, to really low. Yeah. And then they see the movie, and then they find out it's just not very good. It's not mm. the worst thing ever. And all of a sudden, the movie goes from, we all can all kind of agree this isn't very good, to half of the people think it's underrated. <laughs> and I think that's oh, that's God. the thing that frustrates me about The Believer, yeah. is that it's it's not the worst, it's not even the worst Exorcist movie. It's just it's, not it's just very boring. good. Yeah, it's it's just, it doesn't have cohesive ideas. It doesn't have much of a point. It make, it really wastes a lot of its really good actors. What, it's what, just not very good. What frustrates me about a movie like this is, you know, it's The Exorcist has a name attached to it, yeah. and... Uh, it comes out, it's not very good. If this were uh, not called The Exorcist, if, yeah. even if they called it, like, The Exorcist of Angela. Yeah. Uh, Exorcist, exorcism. The, the, exor- the Exorcism of Angela. Yeah. Because right? there's been, also been a, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Name and, yeah. and multiple of those. Yeah. Uh, it would just sort of come and go as this wrote thriller that nobody cares about. Yeah, it may be weird that Ellen Burstyn was playing her character no. from The Exorcist, but other than that, it would be... I suppose so. But the thing is that uh, you can, she kind of lifts out of the movie. Really. Yeah, you can just really, replace her with somebody it's else. It's abundantly um, clear that if they couldn't get Ellen Burstyn, they didn't want to write the plot entirely around her. Yeah. yeah. So they wanted to be a quick rewrite <laughs> if they couldn't get her. But uh, because it's called The Exorcist, we're spending way too much time talking about this movie that doesn't deserve this much conversation. No, not like, on it's, itself, it's, no. It, the, all the conversation comes from its link to previous material. Yeah. We would be that's, done with this review by now. That's how uninteresting this movie is. It could, it doesn't even link up to The Exorcist in an interesting way. It's no. just called The Exorcist. Yeah. And Ellen Burstyn's in it in a, a it, way that is kind of meaningless. It's pretty contrived. Yeah, it doesn't really. It, it's not like, because when Jamie Lee Curtis comes back for Halloween, every, every time she has, mm. it has weight. She actually has this big connection to the character. And to David Gordon Green's credit, I think, you know, those Halloween movies treat her really seriously as a character. It's about her. Yeah. Um, that's not this movie at all. That mm. movie is, this movie is not even about Ellen Burstyn in a meaningful way. It's not about her character in a meaningful way. This time it feels like it's a tacked on cameo. Yeah. Because you know how old, like, the kids out there were just like, hey, where's Ellen Burstyn? Like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I think it's good to, like, honor, like, the legacy of what you're doing if there's an organic reason to do that. Yeah. And, you know, Exorcist 3 found a way to do that. It does connect to the original film in a way that's actually very disturbing. Uh, all... But I don't think you need to be beholden to that. It's just about exorcisms. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really just be about stuff. Anyway. Here, here, here's the twist you put on the exorcist. Yeah, uh, it it takes place in uh, a community of atheists, mm. and one of the kids gets possessed by God. That's no, actually just, just somebody finding their faith, I suppose. Okay, maybe that probably just... happens pretty yeah, pretty okay. often, but yeah, it's a little different. Yeah. Anyway, uh, no, that's not an interesting twist. Uh, point being, um, The Exorcist is a great movie. The second best Exorcist movie, uh, probably Exorcist Three. I think so. Third best is Repossessed, the comedy with Linda Blair. Repossessed is uh, really there's it's some really of the, funny. Some uh, of the Leslie jokes are badly. Well, no, some of the jokes are yeah. badly. Mostly, it's very very funny. It's it's a it's a comedy sequel to to The Exorcist, starring Linda Blair. 
she lampoons her own role. This is like if they were like, if they did like Hot Shots, but Tom Cruise played the Charlie Sheen role. <laughs> like you just never see anyone do that. And yeah, she's a slap, slapstick farce, and it is really she funny. Throws herself into it. She's really really hilarious. If you've never seen it, again, it's a it's a comedy from like 1989, 1990. Some of the jokes will be offensive to modern sensibilities, yeah. but less than you might think. Mm. And. The ones that land, land hard. It's very funny sometimes. Um, but yeah, I would argue right. that it's actually probably the third best. Well, what do you want to talk about next? That's not a question. We have a couple options here. We can either, uh, you didn't see it, but we can go directly to William Friedkin's final film. Uh, yeah, or... let's, because we're still on Exorcist. Talk, okay. talk about Friedkin's final film. Okay. I missed this one. It's on, it's it's on, on Showtime. It's on Showtime, which means you, you can't really see it. You um, can't. <laughs> Unless you have Showtime or uh, you sign up for the free trial and then yeah. see the movie and then unsign it, up for the free trial. I, I, I have a lot of streaming services. I'll say I have a big fistful of them. But if something says, "Oh, it's on Stars," fuck you. I'm not not signing up to Stars. There's everyone has a limit, I think, and I totally get it. And it is unfortunate because the the Kane Mutiny Court Martial is riveting. It is an exceptionally well made film. So, from what I understand, it's it's an update of the original Kane Mutiny novel. Yeah? Yes, the uh, Kane Mutiny uh, is a is a novel. It's not based on a true story. Uh, I, I I used to think it was, but it turns out oh. it's not. Uh, but yeah, it's a story about a uh, a mutiny. Uh, there's a there's a captain named Captain Quig, um, and uh, he's a stern taskmaster on his on his ship. Uh, everyone hates him, mm. and he's. This kind of like insecure, kind of paranoid man who like his entire life is built up in his station, and any sort of challenge to that station makes him respond in in an extreme. Did you ever see like the Humphrey Bogart movie by any chance? No, and, okay. and and I constantly confuse this with Mutiny on the Bounty. I used to do that too. So, so it's They're, like uh, I, I, even, I, even, I even wrote an article. It's like oh yeah, the Kane Mutiny with Captain Bly. Is no Captain Bly was from no. Mutiny on the Bounty, but it's Captain Queeg, Captain which is Queeg also Captain is in the they, Kane Mutiny. They and sound like they should have characters. gone to school together, yeah, yeah. like in a Dickens novel. Like no, no, no. So uh, uh, there's your crossover: Queeg and Bly <laughs> getting together. Yeah, the, the original Kane Mutiny was about uh, it's a novel about the ship in World War to uh the captain of the ship is he has a spotless record but he exhibits indecisive behavior uh cowardice uh he is extremely stern with his men about little ridiculous things while not really being mindful of like big things like their mission uh and uh, they comes to a, a point where they're in the middle of an extreme weather situation and the uh, first officer, in the middle of this extreme situation, decides that Captain Quig is going to get everyone on this boat killed. I need to pull rank. I need to relieve him of command and save everyone's lives. He does this. However, he still pulled rank. And that has consequences. So, in the movie, in like the original movie and in the book... There's the events that precede the court-martial. Then there's the actual court-martial proceedings themselves. Mm. And uh, I, I'm trying to, I don't remember if the original movie really covered it, but in the book it also goes on afterwards, like where everyone went after the court-martial. Uh, this version of the story is just the court-martial. Okay. It is a courtroom drama. We recently did an episode of The Iron List where we talked about the best single-location movies ever. Uh-huh. Uh, 
like 98% of this movie takes place in the courtroom and the hallway just outside of it. I love it. And it is riveting. And that's Friedkin's secret. Um, he, yeah. He, the last couple films of Friedkin's career, and he passed away just recently. Very recently. Um, because he did uh, some Tracy Letts plays. He adapted Bug mm-hmm. uh, and Killer Joe. Yeah. Uh, and those were you know, multiple locations, but mostly one location in both yeah, of them. They're based, and, they're based on a play. There are a lot of mm-hmm. lengthy scenes in one locale. And freaking loves his intensity. That's that's his yeah. kind of... If he has a, a trademark, it's just characters in really intense situations. Mm, sure. Which I know sounds pretty broad, but... Um, yeah. if, if, you, if you see freaking movies, you'd be like, yeah, yeah that's fair. Yeah. Uh, was, <laughs> they tend was, to be people who are focusing on like their task or job, but yeah. that's not explicitly always true. So. Yeah, well, and they, and they become so fixated on that task that they, they start to sort of become a little unhinged, yeah. especially in his later movies. And you can see the French Connection, mm-hmm. to Live and Die in L.A., etc., yeah. yeah. Uh, and if you've seen Bug or Killer Joe, uh, first of all, <laughs> Killer Joe will knock your socks off. Killer that, Joe that, is that thing's fucking Killer Joe is weird and intense and trashy and, as all get out. Oh my god, it, it is trashy like, is the best. One, one, one of the sleaziest, sweatiest yeah. movies you're gonna see. Oh my god! Imagine d- dipping a, a, a wool sweater vest in cod liver oil, <laughs> putting That's... it on, yeah. <laughs> Your metaphor. That's my metaphor. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> the weirdest fucking metaphor. That's how you feel, though. Okay. Something happens with a can of pumpkin pie filling in that movie uh, that I don't want to tell you about. Yeah. Um. So yeah, if he's making a courtroom drama, there's going to be a lot of like sweaty people leaning yeah. in close and yelling at each other. Is it? Yeah. That kind of intensity. Yeah. Does he still have? Oh gosh, thank yeah, goodness. Yeah, it's really really great. Um. So Kiefer Sutherland plays uh, Captain Quig. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, it's really, really nice when people remember he's a good actor. Because yeah, I feel they, like... They, they he, give him that kind of a role. He, he had this thing where a lot of his early roles, he was like a young, hunky thing, but in like Lost Boys. He's great in Lost Boys, mm-hmm. but he was the sexy, seductive leader of a teen biker gang. Yeah. That's what they needed. That's what he gave yeah. them. He played and a lot of heavies. He played a lot uh, of heavies. He played a lot of like hero roles uh, in the in the 80s. Or in the 80s and 90s. Um, and then his he, he was one of the first like of like the modern era. Uh, like big movie actors whose career in movies was waning a bit. He couldn't get the big roles anymore. But he was a really good get for TV. So yeah. when they cast him in 24, it was like watching a Jerry Bruckheimer movie one hour a week. Mm. And that was very novel at the time. Maybe people don't talk about that as much as they should. Because uh, it used to be like, oh, that actor is doing TV now. Oh, how sad for their career. Yeah, he yeah. made it a good thing. He made it better for turn him. it around. And he's very good. The character mm-hmm. Jack Bauer. Great actor. But he kind yeah. of... But then he f- sort of fell into that Liam Neeson trap where he played like steely action heroes a lot. He from did a lot on. of those. But the thing is, is that he's a really, really good and very versatile actor, mm. which he doesn't always get to play. Uh, one of my favorite roles is in it. He's this weird, snivelly Peter Laurie type guy in Dark City. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not. It, seriously, Alex Proyas casting Kiefer Sutherland in that role. Good for you. Mm. That was so against type at the time. Yeah. And he was yeah. and he nails it. He's wonderful in that film. Um so here he plays a guy who, depending on who's interviewing him on the stand, is either the steely Jack Bauer type uh-huh. or the sniveling Peter Lorre type. Oh, I love it. It's right. so great. It's so really wonderful. And Just he, like Rashomon kind of stuff? Or? We, 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 there are no flashbacks. Okay. No flashbacks whatsoever. So it's literally, and it forces you, the audience, to pay attention. Because everything that we're hearing, this is a tell-don't-show movie, but... 
in the courtroom, that's all you'd see. So they are showing you. They're showing you everything that you would need to come to a conclusion for yourself as to whether this mutiny was justified. But they never take the easy way out and actually show you what happened. Because once you see it, even in a Rashomon way, in your head you're thinking, oh, this is probably the real one. Okay. You know, so it never gives you that opportunity. So it's uh, Jason Clark plays uh, the defending counsel. Jason Clark, another good actor who I feel Hollywood doesn't always give good roles to. And I think this is his best role in a really long time. Um, he plays a guy who hates what he's doing. He does not want to be the, the defense counsel. He doesn't want to have to, like, put Captain Quig on trial in order to defend his own client. Because that's the only way to get him off is to prove that mm. committing a mutiny was the right thing to do. Which is just a dangerous precedent to set for the Navy. <laughs> Uh, so he doesn't want to be there at all, but he has to do his job. It is his responsibility to do it. Uh, Monica Raymond plays the opposing counsel. I was not familiar with her. She is mostly done TV. Uh, she's on, uh, she was on Chicago fire for seven years. Okay. Uh, she was on lie to me. She was on the good wife. Um, she's great. She, she's a revelation to me. Like I, I've, I've never really seen her work before. Is a thankless role. She plays the prosecutor who has to believe in things that the audience is trained by other movies and this movie to suspect. Like, I, I, it is my responsibility to defend the Navy from mutiny at all costs, even if it might seem justified. It is my responsibility to defend the career of this, like, celebrated captain uh, who as near as the audience can tell, our sympathy is absolutely not on his side. We're expecting this to be an underdog story where this guy gets taken down a notch. And she has to represent the exact opposite of that without ever coming across as insincere, but also without ever coming across as just a two-dimensional like antagonist. And that's very, very tricky to do. She nails it. Lance Reddick plays the judge, one of his last roles. Uh, he's great as always. Mm. Always great in everything, and it, it should never be it, that should never be forgotten. He's every single time he showed up in a movie or a TV show, he came to nail it, and he always fucking did. Um, this is a movie that rewards your attention. This is a movie that rewards your intelligence. Uh, I had forgotten where the story of the K Mutiny Court Martial, like re where it really went. Uh -huh. uh, I remembered some of the big bullet points. But the where Friedkin and his uh, and he wrote the screenplay as well, um, where he chooses to end this thing, like the exact moment, perfect, <laughs> just absolutely, unbelievably the exact right moment to end the movie. It's so rare to see a movie that knows the correct mo the correct frame. <laughs> To end. Because uh. it's always like, okay, there'll be a little bit more of a denouement. Maybe we'll see what happened to this character. Do we need to outline a little bit more of like what happened to the people in the audience who didn't get it? That kind of thing. Yeah, this exact frame, that's exactly where the movie ends. It's exceptional. Um, does it feel a bit like a filmed play? Kind of, but if you were in the room, that's exactly what it would look like. Well, so it's also, fine. Also, I, I hate the idea that yeah. you know films have to mm -hmm. not resemble plays. Also fair. Why? That's they, a fair they, point. They can, they can resemble be anything plays. they want. That's they can fine. be anything yeah. they want. It's yeah. a movie. You, don't, you just because you have 
you know, there's that whole thing. The uh, what, what what do they call it? The um, it's like the paralysis of choice or something, uh, uh, where uh, you have hmm. so many options, you don't know what to do. Yeah, paradox of choice. Paradox of choice. Yeah. Like uh, like when I play like a, a video game like Skyrim, where the whole idea is, yeah, you can follow the obvious path we laid out for you for the plot, or you can explore over here okay, and get well, involved in something else entirely. You can become a wizard. You, be- path, yeah. you can become a wizard. You become a barbarian. You can become a pacifist. You could just fuck around and start a farm, whatever. And I'm like, you've given me too many choices, and now I don't want to play anymore. Mm. Here, very specific choices are made. Very intelligent, excellent choices. The cast is fantastic. The writing is sharp. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the story, it'll grab you. And it'll challenge you, I think, in ways that you might not expect. In terms of your expectations and what you bring to the story in terms of your values. Um, This is... I don't know if it's going to be one of the best movies of the year. You know, we got like three months to go. I guess, no, three months to go. Uh, and there's going to be this whole glut of films from like some of the best filmmakers who ever, who ever lived and a whole bunch of really ambitious films. They all say for at the end of the movie, it's too early to say if this is one of the best of the year, if it's going to make my top 10, but it might, it's really fucking good. So whoever decided they should only go to showtime. What the fuck is the matter with you? This should be in a theater, and at the very least, some of the actors should be should be getting like serious Oscar campaigns. But anyway, weird choices, <sighs> weird choices. Um, why don't you tell me about when did we do a film only you saw? All right. Why don't you tell me about the creator? The creator. Um, this was a gigantic, uh, not as gigantic as you might think, but a big budget yeah. studio sci-fi film. Uh, and a, under, and a, under an original. Million, and, and an original one. Yeah, um, not based on a novel or a comic book or something. Uh, and it, it was directed by one of the Gareths. Uh, <laughs> it was Gareth Edwards. Yeah, uh, not Evans. Gareth Edwards and Evans both rose to prominence at the same time. That's mm. rude. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Gareth. One of you needs to change your name to, like, Sigourney. <laughs> like, just for... So, f- this one's Gareth Edwards. Yeah. Uh, he is. Uh, he directed a little independent film uh, in the early 2010s called Monsters, mm-hmm. which. Uh, I actually never saw. I haven't seen it, but I know it was one of those cases where, uh, like, a talented indie director was tapped by a studio to immediately do, like, a big franchise picture. Because he did the like, uh, big legendary Godzilla. He did, yeah, did the legendary yeah. Godzilla, uh, a movie I don't like. Uh, yeah. I'm a big Godzilla fan, but I don't like that one. Uh, I, think, I think the one thing he's great at in that yeah. movie is capturing scale. That movie hmm. feels huge. And uh, give it credit cer- for that. Certain sequences. Um, no. And then he also, and he, then he stayed in sort of like the big franchise universe because he also did a Star War. Yeah. Uh, he did Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Another movie I don't like. Uh-huh. Uh, here, Gareth Ed, Edwards uh, is really good at, uh, he hires good cinematographers and mm-hmm. he's good at creating a good sense of mood. And he's good at design because everything like technical in that Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. It's actually really first rate. I love, yeah. I love the sort of hazy photography. I love that everything mm-hmm. looks a little bit worn down. Oh, it's one of the best looking in. Star yeah. Wars movies we've ever uh, had. Yeah. Even the special effects are really first rate. Um, yeah. But it's just the story really stings and the yeah. characters aren't interesting. It and, is hard to say though because like Tony Gilroy was brought in to rewrite that story like massively like after Gareth Edwards had worked on it and there were like big reshoots. So it's hard to say how much of that mm-hmm. is his anymore. It's my understanding that there is like, I'm supposed to be like a very different cut out there somewhere. Uh, well, but hey, maybe there's a good one. The one who can, is it's hard to say how much of it's, it's much of it is Gareth I, Edwards anymore, but yeah, maybe it mostly is. I honestly don't I, know. I can't really give it the benefit of the doubt because no. I've only seen one movie and that's no. the only movie I can. Uh, and I don't think it's very good either. I don't think it's very um, good either. 
Here he is back with the creator. It's uh, all original idea. Well, it's all it's not a franchise. Uh, <laughs> it's not directly adapted no. from something. Uh, but yeah, he he uh, directed it. He co-wrote it with Chris Whites, uh, and he oh, produced okay. it. So this Who is also like, worked on that Star Wars movie, I think. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah, he wrote, he wrote, yeah I think he wrote, had a writing credit on Rogue One. Hang on. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. He co-wrote okay. Rogue One. This uh, this movie starts in uh, the twenty fifties, and it's been uh, it takes place in an alternate timeline mm-hmm. where uh, and, and this is like a very anime concept. Mm. The idea that uh, intelligent robots were invented sort of in the nineteen fifties, and oh, it becomes okay. sort of so like a uh, whole alternate history. Yes, like this alternate okay. history uh, where they kind of rose to prominence, and then at some point. Um, uh, AI uh, rose up, and then all of a sudden, this uh, a bomb, uh, an A bomb, was dropped on Los Angeles, okay. killing millions, and uh, and AI was blamed. So uh, okay. it was outlawed in the United States. Fast forward like another uh, decade or so, and people in Los Angeles have kind of uh, recovered. There are no robots uh, left in the United States, but they all have settled uh, all of the intelligent robots into, I think they just call it New Asia, which is this amalgam of uh, multiple Asian nations. Uh, Which is is a choice. It's it's a choice. I I don't think the... It feels really just ignorant on the filmmakers parts like they're not trying to capture uh like the cambodian diaspora or the or you know the 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 chinese diaspora it's like this is just all asians are kind of Mm -hmm. lumped together it feels like there's a lot of stereotypes at play that doesn't sound Um, great but okay uh but you know you might level the same thing uh same sort of accusations it's something like uh blade runner which uses a lot of Asian culture as an aesthetic rather than uh-huh. like uh, some sort of actual cultural commentary. Again, without seeing the film, mm. I can't really judge mm. how they handle yeah, it differently but, uh, or similarly, but yeah. Uh, John David Washington plays a government agent who's gone undercover to catch somebody who knows about where the AI is hiding out because America wants to go overseas and kill all the less of the robots. Okay. Uh, the woman he's... Uh, chosen to who's been selected to tales played by Gemma Chan and he ends up falling in love with her and they live with each other for a long time and they huh. st- and she gets pregnant oh, that's and they start nice. have, starts to have a baby and, and everything turns out fine yeah everything turns out fine no in the in the intro uh all of this like a lot of shit happens right away so i uh, you know people break in it's like John David Washington you're a secret agent oh shit I, my wife caught me i'm really upset at you and she starts sailing off on a boat and a bomb drops and it looks like she gets evaporated <clears throat> uh fast forward another couple of years He's back, uh, John David Washington is back working with his government cronies. They say, we're going to do another strike in Asia. A lot of Vietnam War imagery as the, the American soldiers go over there. There's a lot of uh, you know, images of tanks with the phrase U.S. Army printed very neatly on the sides, like rolling over entire villages. It'd be great if it was written sloppily. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> just like just packed like, on there. Just spray real painted on. Oh, shit, we forgot, and, to, uh, we forgot to say this one was ours. And, and America has just developed this... Uh, gigantic new weapon called nomad which is this gigantic sky like an airship that flies around in suborbital heights and can scan the surface from there uh-huh. and when it finds a robot it can just drop a bomb it's like a super drone so when it finds something that it considers like an imperfection it destroys it and, and it's, it's called, called nomad. nomad yeah which is straight out of star trek That's straight out of star trek okay All right, so, the, so, we, so we got some aliens imagery we got yeah. some star trek imagery we got a lot of anime influences yeah, sounds in like they took some a from lot of blade, blade runner stuff yeah. in there uh, all of those cliched images you see in all of these horrible american films about asia 
where yeah. it's like we're gonna and uh, the American character in like like in a lot of these things is going to be redeemed by an Asian child. Uh, so mm. it's it's rumored that the robots have the secret weapon that can destroy the nomad, and now the Americans have to go in and kill it or destroy it. And it yeah. turns out that the weapon is in the form of a very human-looking android child. Oh, so it's like and, the Jewel of the Nile. Uh, or it's the Golden Child. Also, uh, Jewel which of is Nile. not I, I've not seen. Band. Yeah, I guess so. It's um, yeah, and I've not seen. I've seen the Jewel of the Nile, but I have not seen. Uh, oh, Golden Child. Golden, uh, Golden Child was the was a movie that. Um, Eddie Murphy was on a hot streak. I think Golden Child kind of was his big speed bump because, mm. like, it was supposed to be a big deal. He played like a like a social worker or something who like had to protect, like, rescue this kidnapped child who was like the embodiment of magic or whatever. And Charles Dance was an evil bad guy. It's not a good movie. I will say this: the visual effects in that movie are fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, there's and, really great stop motion in that movie. And I'll say that the visual effects in this are really great too. Um, the Android girl who is the weapon. Uh, they they nickname her Alfie because her her designation is Alpha O, Alpha Omega. I, okay, um, I get it. She's played by an actress named Ma- Madeline Yuna Voiles. I think it's pronounced. Do they ever oh. sing the Alfie song? What's, what's it, it all about? about? Wouldn't that be fun? I think somebody Alfie? does actually say "What's it all about, Alfie?" at okay. one point. There you go. But uh, it turns out, and the way they depict, there are androids that have like robot heads like cameras for heads. Yeah. Like, but then there's uh, robots that have really human looking faces, but like the backs of their heads are all Android like, and they have like, tubes through their skulls. So mm-hmm. you can like, kind of like look inside their brains. Okay. Um, not really sure how that plays in like what some are just older and I guess uh, Android technology advanced. There's a scene mm. where there's an Android uh, like assembly line where we get to see all of the androids being built. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. You know, uh, well, why are we why are we mass producing more androids? To what newer, what, uh, in what newer, end? In the newer Battlestar Galactica, there were uh, different uh, Cylons, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them looked human. Some of them looked like you know big silver robots. Uh, and one thing they eventually talked about is how like there is like a class or caste system mm. built into that based on like what model you are. Oh wow! Maybe it's something okay. like that. I don't know. I was just, uh, uh, nothing like that. Okay. In fact, um, the, the the androids don't have like android personalities they're artificially intelligent they just behave like people and the special effects are great i mean if you yeah. remember the robot from uh gareth Ro- edwards star wars movie that yeah it's a great robot moved really realistically i love that and, robot yeah. yeah it's one of my favorite star uh, wars robots but this little girl android alfie knows something about where uh, uh john david washington's wife might be because she might have survived that explosion so it's like i'm gonna go rogue I'm going to kidnap this little girl and she's going to take me to my ex-wife while the uh, android army is behind me and the American mm-hmm. army is behind me. The American army is re- uh, represented by really kind of cliched, uh, tough-talking mm-hmm. uh, marine general. What what uh, what tough guy character actor did they get to play that? Allison Janney. Oh, that's <laughs> great, actually. And she is, I mean, she's, okay. a, she's one of, like... One of the better actors, oh, just yeah. period. She's wonderful. And um, never seen her be bad in anything. And and yeah. and she just she brings it. It's cliched role, but yeah. she really brings Good it to that her. role. There's a, some scenes where it's like, oh, oh no, the soldier's dead. Let me plug this thing onto their skull, and we can suck out like their last memories and put it in an android body for like a minute before they die again. Like there's cool stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, every plot point you're gonna predict um, what's mm. gonna happen. You probably already know what the end is. I have to some all theories, but okay. Uh, 
And unfortunately, while the visuals are completely dazzling and the mm-hmm. special effects are really first rate, and that they did so with just an $80 million budget, which is which small for this kind of a film. Very small for this um, kind of a film. It, it all looks fantastic, but it's not so dazzling that I'm distracted by how weak the characters are, yeah. how bad the plot point is, and, and how they're really just milking Asian culture yeah. for a lot of cheap emotional beats for an American character. No, that, that's a, that's a whole can of worms. And I can't really mm-hmm. delve into that without seeing the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm obviously taking your word for it. Um, I mean, you've, the, you've seen avatar, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but here's, here's, there's something people say, cause you talked about how like, you know, it's an original mm-hmm. story and we don't get a lot of big budget original science fiction fantasy stories mm. anymore. They usually come from somewhere else because it feels like they've been like product tested for the studio. So they don't feel like it's too much of a risk. Um, it's been said many times. I think we've, we've both said it that uh, the theory goes that audiences want the same thing mm. over and over again, but in a different way. Yeah. They want to be uh, surprised in the same way as the term. That's I mean. a great That's way to put it. it. Yeah. yeah. We're basically, and so like you could argue that like, Hey, it's not actually, uh, quote unquote original because it's really derivative of a lot of things. Mm. My question for you is even though it seems like it's subpar in the writing department and makes some bad thematic choices, um, does it feel like at the very least all of these ideas that they're repackaging have been put into mm. a new package? Does it feel like a new uh, thing? Uh, it really doesn't. That's the and that's the issue. If it did, I wouldn't be complaining about it. I, I yeah. might note, it, you know, mention that it's okay, and they took some of these elements from Aliens, but it's quite good. It's yeah, they're not. It's the, the, Gareth Edwards is so focused on sort of the visuals in the world that he didn't bother to focus on character or story, <laughs> uh, and the themes he's exploring are really sloppy. There's a lot of. Um, the, the creator of the title is like one of the original creators of all androids. And they're trying mm-hmm. to rescue this person as sort of like a, a, a savior of Android kind during this mm-hmm. war. And they call this character Nirmata. And there's a lot of like Buddhist imagery throughout. There's a sure. lot of uh, religions of various faith. There's character, there's a character mm-hmm. named Maya. And if you know the, what the word Maya means, then you'll know that it has like a lot of uh, religious symbolism throughout several faiths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, while you can start to dig in and find some really interesting uh, religious themes in the creator, yeah, it's they're so tacked on or they're so slight that they don't really affect the movie one way or another. Mm. It's Gareth Edwards just sort of proving once again that he's very good at science fiction battles, dystopias, imagery, a lot of wonderful mm. shots of these really cool design ships flying around these like utopian sci-fi societies, all that stuff's really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's all it is. Yeah. As a special effects demo reel, it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but more, more please, some thoughts, some engagement, yeah. something to get me interested other than these great visuals. Yeah. Uh, and it just doesn't have any of that. That's a bummer. All right. Uh, well, let's go back to, uh, let's go back to the, the world of franchises because mm. we have the 10th film. In a series. Oh, golly. To review. Uh, 11, if you include the original short film, because uh, I saw Saw X, a.k.a. Saw 10. Uh, I still think it's Saw 10, because Saw 3 through 6 mm-hmm. were just Roman numerals. That's true, but then he had Saw 3D, which was oh, Saw no, 7. Saw two, excuse me, 2 through 6. 2 through 6 were Roman mm-hmm. numerals. Then there was Saw 7, which was called Saw 3D. Then there was just Jigsaw. Mm. Then there was Spiral from the Book of Saw, which apparently only had that one chapter because they never used that again. And now we're back to Saw X. Yeah. Uh, 
the Saw movies were the horror franchise of the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, they debuted in the early 2000s. They were the debut feature from uh, James Wan and uh, was co-written by, uh, maybe just actually only written by, but it was written by Lee Whannell. It co-starred Lee Whannell. Mm-hmm. And they would go on to create the Insidious movies together. Lee Whannell would go on to uh, you know write and direct that incredible Invisible Man yeah, uh, remake. That's a good Great movie. Great fucking movie. James Wan became one of the biggest blockbuster directors of the 21st century. Yeah, and a that. lot of that's just from his horror. He did, because he did The Conjuring, He, right? he launched yeah. three blockbuster did, horror the franchises. Conjuring. The Conjuring, Saw, and so, Insidious. And Insidious. He, uh, those he, are blockbusters. Those are huge, high-grossing movies. Uh, and movies. Uh, and if you want to yeah. count it as its own thing, Aquaman. That Aquaman was a is, huge hit. Aquaman is, I, I think it's actually the only, besides Joker, the only DCEU superhero movie to make over a billion dollars. Yeah, it was yeah. Aquaman. Aqua of all the things. Yeah, Aquaman. And he had the and, touch, and you know? he also did a Fast, a Furious Seven. Yeah, which was one of the bigger ones. Which so was one the, of the biggest ones. He's like a legit hit machine. He's a James huge Wong. filmmaker. He's a great filmmaker. And of, and of course, Malignant. And Malignant's <laughs> fucking amazing. Malignant is fucking great. I love Malignant to be no. Seriously, he's one of the biggest. He's got his finger on the pulse. Like he's one of those guys who I was just like. Everyone's always like, "Oh, don't bet against James Cameron." I'm not going to bet against James Wan. Yeah, that guy yeah. knows. That guy knows what makes money. Like, and, and mm. he makes good movies for the most part. I've only seen a couple and of James Wan movies that didn't work for me. Was it James Wan who dropped out of mm. Um, mm. Fast X? Uh, no, it was Justin Lin. Oh, Justin Lin. Dropped. Justin okay. Lin was going to had come back. I, I know for some, it, somebody then he dropped, left. somebody started. And no, then no, because Justin Lin did. Justin Lin did Fast and Furious three, four, five, and six. Yeah, and then he bowed out, mm-hmm. and then they brought him back for I think nine, and then he was going to do ten, and then like at the last minute or right at the start of shooting, he left. I don't know what happened, but no. I think it was replaced by Louis Leteria. But anyway, we're off in the weeds. Um, so this is this was the first franchise that James Wan and Lee Whannell created, uh, and it stars uh, the amazing Tobin Bell. Wonderful character actor who became like the the face of a franchise, and he's so fucking great. Like he's so intense and wonderful uh, that they kept him as the center of the series long after his character died, because his whole thing was he would kidnap somebody and he put them in like a strange room location, often very like grungy, abandoned warehouse aesthetic, uh, and it would be hooked up to some kind of horrible mutilation machine. Mm. And they yeah. would there would always the, be the, like a John Kramer, the, the Tobin yeah. Bell character, was a machinist. He yeah. Could, and had like access to all these materials and he had the know how to like well both. A, stuff a brilliant together, inventor yeah. and engineer. And uh, so like but he would do things like, Okay, so uh, you know, you you I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of like one of the better, like straightforward, mm-hmm. like ironic ones. But well, like the, the, the from the first Saw movie, um, yeah. Shawnee Smith played a character who... Uh, yeah, Amanda. Her, Amanda was... Yeah. Uh, her life was in a bad place. She was an addict and yeah. she was committing crimes. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, he argued that you, know, you don't value your life. So, so. I'm going to see if you actually do value your life. I've attached this thing to your head. It'll essentially rip the top of your head off on, it, on a timer. It's called the reverse bear trap mm-hmm. where it's just like, you know, the, the it's got like two plates. They're in your mouth and it'll snap open and like break your your whole face yeah, open uh-huh. uh, but it's on a timer and you can hear it clicking in the back of your head and he says okay if you but there's really a key wanna, on it you yeah. can unlock it if you don't want to if you want to throw your life away all you got to do is nothing and you'll die in 90 seconds or the key is inside the stomach of that corpse over there if you have it in you to take that out in 90 yeah. seconds with your bare hands you clearly want to live and you get a new lease on life and you will thank me afterwards uh 
That's actually not a great example of a saw trap, though, because John Kramer's whole shtick is he says he doesn't kill anybody. Yeah. He gives them, he always gives everybody a chance to live. But they have to hurt themselves. They have There's to self, hurt them. a lot of self-mutilation. Well, yeah. But in that particular example, they have to hurt someone else, and it turns out the guy's not dead. Yeah. So it's the one time where that guy he killed. <laughs> that, guy, yeah, so. that guy had no way out. Someone there, was going to die, was, either I her remember or there, uh, there's, I've, I've seen the first uh, eight yeah. of these. I didn't see Saw 9. Yeah. Um, but you, you there's... Much. That, that's the one with Chris Rock, and I yeah, didn't see that one. Yeah, it's not that good. One. But, uh, uh, oh gosh, what was I going to say? You said, uh, we're talking about the traps. Uh... Oh, the, that, uh, he does, he does kill a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and, but there's always, there's a line of dialogue usually in these movies about how the people that he definitely does kill, uh, mm-hmm. deserved it in some way. There's a righteous there's a karmic element, element to, yeah. uh, to, uh, Jigsaw's, yeah. uh, and it turns out it's all related to, the the medicine industry and like well, he was a lot. sick and there's a lot he he Let's was dying the, the, the whole uh, well actually plot, it's important yeah. to this new movie so I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a quick primer on that uh, Jigsaw was a guy he he had a complicated difficult life uh, and then he found out he had brain cancer and he you know that's a very very terrible thing to go through and of memory serves uh he was thinking about just not even trying to fight it and then he was in a car accident and he had to like crawl through glass in order to survive and he realized that i, I do want to survive mm-hmm. just because it's hard doesn't mean i don't want to survive i'll do anything to survive and he can start to consider this epiphany he had as something he can give to other people so he finds other people who are lost or throwing their lives away in some way and he puts them in a position to prove to themselves just how much they want to live. However, he doesn't have to go to such sick, deranged lengths to do that. That's on him. That's your choice there, John. You did not have to do that. Also, John, I put it to you that giving people 90 seconds to figure out death traps that they don't know how they work while their body is surging with adrenaline and also they're engaged in enormous bodily harm... Mm. Asking them to stay focused and make decisions in that 90 seconds or they'll die is a lot to ask of a person. Yeah. It's not really a fair situation now, is it? The, the one that I felt was like kind of fair uh, yeah. was in the first Saw movie. Yeah. Um, there was um, uh, uh, one of the, his prisoners had to write down a code on something and the yeah. code was written on the walls of his cell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was really dark in the cell, and he had a little candle. Yeah. And he was coated with flammable material. Yeah. So, so he had to, like, hold the candle very carefully and just move carefully through the darkness to look at the wall. Try to find the right and then, code. Yeah, carry There's it a whole back and write it down. Yeah. yeah. So he's going through wall to wall. Yeah. So it's, it's like, okay, the, yeah. if you, that, like, you can take your time. Yeah. Like, you can no be careful. T- there's no timer. Yeah. You can be a little careful. It's it's harrowing, yeah. but at least, you know, you, have, you can, if you're skilled enough, yeah. you can escape. Of course, that that guy doesn't. And then one thing we learn over the Saw movies is that Jigsaw's, his belief that that would be a life-changing event for the people who survived was accurate, and he actually, over the course of the series, developed several acolytes who, after Jigsaw died, very clearly, no way out unless we suddenly decide the series is magical, very clearly dies in Saw 3. Mm-hmm. Well, shit, how do we continue this series? We right. had, and we see his autopsy. They beginning of Saw apart. 4, yeah. like very clearly, definitely dead. I'm sure they thought they were very clever, and they've the producers have already like, recently admitted, we probably shouldn't have done that. That was very short-sighted. We 
really didn't think that through. But um, the movies that followed, I, I really ambitious, actually. They have this incredible, like, elaborate, uh, mm. multi-layered, uh, like, like, time two, structure. Yeah, two movies, like, take place over the same time yeah, frame. And you, don't and, know, and, that, and you don't know that until the end, and it's a twist. Uh, there are characters who are revealed to have been acolytes all along, but their philosophy of the death traps is more fucked up than Jigsaw's was, and so their death traps work in a different way. Uh I really admire most of the Saw movies. I think that they had, and, and you know, they weren't all amazing. I would argue that like two is really great. I think six is really, really great. Cause that's the one where it's about getting revenge on the uh, American healthcare system. Yeah. A lot of people have come around on six just because that hits so fucking hard. Um, but uh, they're, they're really consistent. They might not be all amazing movies, but you get what you came for every fucking time. The death traps are exciting. There's always a couple of good twists. There's this really demonic Grand Guignol, like uh, operatic quality yeah. to the to the mayhem. That's really really great. By the time they took a break and they came back for Jigsaw from uh, New Filmmakers, it was the guys who did uh, Premonition and Daybreakers, the Spirit Brothers. Um, good filmmakers normally. Um, they did not have the flair for it. No, it doesn't. It just well, doesn't and, feel big. And by then, uh, I think it's worth noting that you know, the Saw movies came up during uh, the the George W. Bush administration. Yeah, and that was actually really significant to the types of horror movies we were making at the time. Yeah, uh, you know, go back less than a decade, and we have like playful slasher revival movies like Scream. Yeah, that are like sort of deconstructing. Comparing uh, you know, what you did last summer. To hostile. Yeah, yeah. Those are uh, very different vibes. <laughs> very different vibes. We, we were going through a very sort of bitter time in this country. Yeah. And, you know, images of actual military torture were leaking yeah. into the media. Uh, the, the Abu Ghraib prison torture yeah. photographs oh, uh, were, re- were released only a few months before Saw came out. That's, you know, Genuinely every, every, everything kind pictures. of was yeah. falling in. Uh, a lot of people started to call those movies torture porn, which yeah. uh, is it's, a term I have no objections to. Um, I, I think because it is, I understand I, what it refers to. I, I also um, understand that it is like in by nature of what it's trying to evoke mm. dismissive. Mm. And I that, that bothers me. It shouldn't be because I think porn is just a genre like any other type yeah. of movie, but it, it does carry it, that stamp. And a lot of people are eager to dismiss them. Yeah, there's as a result. I don't I don't care for it. Mm. I also think that just the idea is um, is just misplaced anyway, because the graphic stuff you see in porn is supposed to be fun. <laughs> the, the, Whereas in, in the torture porn movies, it's all like, oh, is, gross. The idea is that the torture was the rise on debt of these movies. And in fact, they took up... The Saw movies weren't quite like this, but there were plenty of other movies oh, where yeah. it was just scene after scene of physical torture. It was just people going through pain. Yeah. Uh, a, lot, a lot of weird surgery movies came out mm-hmm. at the time as well. Uh, and the whole point was the suffering. That's yeah. why it was called porn. It was just the fetishization of pain. I understand and that, that. I and just that, think and it's And there, was, there wasn't, like, character or story in I think there's things. so much going on in that genre, mm-hmm. and as you said, it, it's mm-hmm. popularity at that exact moment in time mm-hmm. that makes it impossible mm-hmm. to dismiss. Well, it makes yeah. it impossible to... Dis- I'm not dismissing it. Oh, no, but no, I think you're not. I think I'm saying the, other people do. But I think the phrase is... is fair and I, I have no problems with it and if i'm gonna see a torture movie i'm okay with that i want to see a torture movie that's fine anyway um, the saw movies uh mm. point being really reflected uh, a certain kind of painful bitterness yeah. that the country was going through by the time we got to jigsaw we were kind of over it yeah but, and i'm not really sure why we're coming back to saw in 2023 uh, i'm actually gonna i i think we actually have good reasons here um 
So Jigsaw was just kind of like a limp follow-up. Hey, what if there was a copycat? Uh, Spiral from the Book of Saw had a different vibe. I'll give it that. And it was trying to be like a 90s kind of police thriller. Kind of the same vibe that like Matt Reeves, the Batman, was going for. Like, hey, what if we go back to kind of Seven as our guiding aesthetic? Uh-huh. Um, Spiral did not have the juice to back that up. Actually, it's weirdly inert for a Saw movie. Like the death traps just aren't even that interesting. With Saw 10, we're going back to two, I think, very, very important things. Uh, firstly, we're going back to John Kramer. Uh, this is a another, flashback movie. This is a whole... Fl- and, and unlike most of the Saw movies, almost all of them, uh, there are no real, like, time gimmicks here. It's not like, here's the present and here's the flashback and we'll see how all they right. connect eventually. It's just in the past. This is okay. just a John Kramer story. Uh, it also has brought back a certain uh, uh, very valuable, and this is so important to the series, Righteous Indignation. The plot of the movie is John Kramer, when he was alive, uh, is starting to get really desperate about his health situation. Like, he, he knows he doesn't have a lot of time left. And we know that he has been the jigsaw killer for a while. Uh, he learns of... So he's already ex- established... Killer. He's already, people already know about the Jigsaw Killer, although we don't spend a lot of time with that. There's one really annoying bit, actually, where it's, it's the coolest, like, death trap in the movie. It's the one you see in all the posters with, like, the suction tubes in the guy's eyes. Oh, yeah. It's a really, really cool sequence. Uh, I'm just going to say this right now because it's right at the beginning of the movie. It's a dream. It's him oh, it's coming up with an idea and then not having to use it. So it's really, really cool. It's also a cop-out. Not my favorite thing. It's I feel like it's literally only there because they wrote the screenplay and they realized that no one died until halfway into the movie. Oh, so, so they, they needed they to put some, some jigsaw some shit in there. right at the start. It, yeah. it does what it needs to do. It's a bit of a cop out. The Saw movies have done that before. There's been like one or two that were like act, that were a dream, but still, always a cop out when it happens. Um, but basically, he is you know, he only has a few months left to live, maybe. Uh, and uh, he finds out about an experimental treatment that he could take in Mexico, which is promising. So he goes to Mexico, hasn't been approved by the FDA. He goes to Mexico, pays the money. They're going to do this experimental treatment. And he's started to feel a lot of hope. And maybe he can put the jigsaw stuff behind him and actually, you know, restart his life in a normal way. Uh, and this is a prequel so you should mm. know that that's not what happens. <laughs> I'm not surprising you. The movie plays it like it is. The movie plays it like some kind of David Mamet thing. Where like mm. if we're paying attention we can pick up on all these clues. And I'm like, that is ex- that's there for two reasons actually though. And, I th- and I'm actually not going to complain about it. A, someone in the audience, this is their first Saw movie and maybe you'll get them. Fine. Okay. But B... I mean, it's It's been... Almost twenty years. It's been almost twenty years, but every movie is someone's first. You know, again, this hasn't. We haven't had a lot of new Saw movies lately. This might be someone's first time seeing an R-rated horror movie in a theater or something like that. This is their introduction, and honestly, it works as a standalone. You don't really need the other films to know it. Um, Wise approach. Yeah, I think so. Uh, And B, uh, we're really getting something we've never had before in the Saw movies, which is. John Kramer is our protagonist. It's always always been about like the people in his death traps before. Yeah. This one is about John Kramer. Okay. This is about his hopes. This is about his dreams. And this is about them being dashed against the rocks by assholes. 
So, so when he finds out he's, he's locked into a death trap. When he finds out he's been conned, the second half of the movie is everyone responsible for that is now trapped in fucking death traps. <laughs> and he he's still still a true believer. He could just kill him if he wanted to. He's like, no, I've got to give him an opportunity. Everyone deserves a second chance. Uh, if you can saw your own leg off, I won't decapitate you. There you go. Like that kind of thing. And it's like, Jesus, John. You just had that in your back pocket? My God. You put this whole thing together in like 24 hours. Yikes. Incredibly resourceful. Very resourceful. Um, the death traps in this movie, that opening one notwithstanding, um, are very, for him, very raw. There's like one, no, sorry, there's two ridiculously elaborate ones where I just don't see how you physically had time to literally do the work to make it <laughs> in the time that you allow in this movie. But they're very visceral. They're very simple. They're, they're, there's something where like, um, Sometimes, like, a saw trap can be, like, so absurd and, like, gigantic uh-huh. that you can be impressed and maybe you can be dazzled, but you're not going to feel it. Yeah. The the horrible things people have to do and do to themselves in this movie bring that back where you're really feeling it. Like, oh, God, I, oh, that's what it would be like to saw off my own leg, like that kind of thing. Um, all of that's really, really intense. All of that is really, really great. The idea that John Kramer has this sort of moral authority in this one because we know that the people who are in those death traps are not good people. Yeah. There's no real maybe about that, like some more than others, but still really goes a long way. This is the, I think it's the highest rated Saw movie from critics ever. It's got like an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, wow. That's insanity. And the reason why I think is because it's the one that is straightforward. There's no flashbacks. There's no flashbacks. There's no twist. It, it, like, it is a flashback, but there's no like yeah, it's, chronological it, it nonsense. It exists in its own self. You don't need to like keep five other movies in your head while you watch it. It tells a consistent story from beginning, middle, and end. There's a couple of twists here and there, but it's not like uh, they're not trying to like really blow you away. It's actually like fitting, ironic, karmic justice, that kind of thing. Um, the death traps are cool again. You put Tobin Bell front and center properly for the first time in the entire movie, and he can carry it. It's a great return to form. It is one of the best movies in the series. Not everybody uh, likes the series. I totally get that. And if you don't, this, say, this yeah, is that... not going to probably change your mind. But this is absolutely one of the best movies in the series. I think okay. it's in the top two or three. Um, um, so I'm... it's great. I even when you're talking about the best Saw movies, they're, yeah. they're not great. Even the first yeah. one has a flashback and a flashback. Oh, the, the first one is uh, a mess. It's it's an ex, it's a bunch of film students who are so excited to make their first movie that they throw everything in it. Yeah, I, and you, you can tell they have talent. You also can tell scale it the fuck back a little. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't really care about the twisted chronology or the, yeah. the acolytes of acolytes. Like, the, yeah. the story gets way too complicated. We have I, uh, Shawnee Smith and Costas Mandalore is an important character. I love Costas Mandalore. He's really underappreciated. He carried those movies for like three <laughs> fucking movies and no one ever gives him yeah, any credit for it. he carried not very good movies is yeah, my point. No, uh, I... Yeah. I like four through six better than I, most I think what, what you yeah. take away from these movies are just sort of the torture set pieces. You know, how are people going to mutilate themselves? One guy in one of the movies sawed his arm lengthwise. Oh, you know, yeah, that uh, was fucked. Yeah, that like was starting gross. in between his fingers and oh, just going down. Oh, God, and yeah, they were so, dangling. Oh, it was yeah, so yeah. gross. Yeah. Because like, he had to fill something with his own blood. Yeah, like, oh, um, it was awful. Yeah, I love that one, actually. Uh, I think that was six. That was five. Um, 
That was five. Right. That was five. Yeah, that was the one with uh, everyone who was trapped was like people who were gentrifying the neighborhood. So right. It's another kind of karmic justice. It was that's a that's another underrated one. I like that one. I, I liked the, uh, the ending this, of that one. Is killer. this one was also a one. dream sequence? But I love the one. It's like I'm gonna set up a rocket train with <laughs> with like a thirty yeah. foot knife on the front. Oh my and it's like, god, that was so blast silly. someone to pieces. Like what the what are we even fucking doing anymore? That, and again, a rocket was, train. And again, that was uh, a dream. It was such a cop it was a, out. yeah. It's such a cop out. <laughs> You're gonna str- it's like, Come on. when did you do that? <laughs> well, never. It was yeah. a dream, but fair enough. It's like in real life, this guy would be like competing on battle bots. Like he'd, just- <laughs> he'd be me. Oh, he'd be the best. <laughs> he'd be the best battle bot guy. <laughs> so the, the the Saw movies served a particular function, a pur- particular um, uh, yeah. span of this country's history, but. Yeah. I would argue that we're I kind of back like, to that in some ways, though, in terms of like in, in, the, the 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 bitterness, the cynicism, the fear of our own future, the anger yeah. that is towards. I think that there is something. I think that like I said there's a righteous indignation. I think hmm. that's back in yeah. a lot of ways, and I think well, it's you'll speaking to these, that now. These movies didn't really uh, stride very far during the Obama administration. No, they really didn't. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. So yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's I think it's the best one, uh, not the best one. I think it's one of the best ones. Um, do, uh, do, do you want to talk about the Roald Dahl shorts, or do you want to talk sure. about some more horror movies? What do you want to do? Uh, what would you like to talk about? Uh, it's William? Whitney. I uh, you, I picked the Saw movie. You yeah. <laughs> All right. Tell me what you want to talk about. Um, let me talk about. Uh, I'll I'll just quickly go through Foe. Okay. Because uh, this is a science fiction movie, and um, golly, there's little to say. Um, ah. That's a chance. This is from a filmmaker named Garth Davis, uh, who did a, a film that I kind of liked called Mary Magdalene a couple of years ago. I remember that. Uh, where Joaquin Phoenix played Jesus Christ and uh, Rooney Mara played Mary Magdalene. And it was sort of about their relationship. Barely got released. Yeah. I don't remember anyone talking about it. Uh, and it, it was controversial at the time because it's all white actors speaking yeah. English, playing, yeah. you know, doing another Jesus movie. Yeah. Uh, Foe is a really curious sci-fi story that you would think would make a really cool sort of Twilight Zone plot. So it takes place okay. in the near future. It's like the 2060s. Uh, and there's this mer- and the earth is dying. It's drying out. There's uh, droughts and food shortages. Yeah. It looks a lot like uh, Interstellar. Okay. And uh, this married couple lives in this really, really remote farmhouse and they can barely keep things together. Uh, Saoirse Ronan plays the wife. She yeah. scoops up her shower water at the end and like pours it on one tree. And it's like yeah. the only tree that's blooming. Everything else is dead. Okay. Her husband is Paul Mezcal from, uh, yeah. Uh, after son, uh, after son. Yeah. Uh, I love after son. He's great in after son. Uh, and they're clearly miserable. They just hate each other. Like there's all the lot of a lot of long like prolonged shots of sad people staring into the middle distance. Which is not the same as building mood. I actually kinda hate that <laughs> shit. I, I like a good, moody, depressing movie, but, mm-hmm. you know, there you, you have to do more than just have people stare into the middle distance. You know, the greatest scene where someone stares into the middle of distance, mm-hmm. and it's because the score is doing all the goddamn work, yeah. it's Luke Skywalker looking at the twin sons. Yeah, right. So he's like, like, I'm looking at my future. No, you're staring into the middle distance. John Williams is looking into your future. <laughs> and thank God he is. I'm not saying it's a bad scene. I'm saying the staring to the middle distance is not the part that works. I would love to see a cut of star Wars with no music. Like, like oh, how, how, weird, how right? play? You like, know? remember you've seen those like cuts of like the end of ET where there's yeah, no music cut, when yeah. he's saying goodbye. And it's just 
awkward. It's really like a lot of slow, awkward moments. Yeah. You hear like howling in the distance. I think it was John Carpenter who said he made a mistake once of like showing like an unfinished cut of a movie with no music mm. and everyone hated it. And he's yeah. like, I'm never showing it without music again. It <laughs> it's not the same oh, film. Yeah. Uh, in, into their lives comes uh, this, this third fellow. He comes in like in this like clunky space DeLorean yeah. to indicate that it's the future. Uh, this is a character named Terrence. He's played by an actor named Aaron Pierce. Okay. We suspect that this character and the Saoirse Ronan character might have had an affair or maybe Paul Mezcal is just a really jealous guy. Okay. Either way, he, he's an asshole. The Paul Mezcal character is terrible. Aww. And it's... Uh, Terrence says... Paul Mezcal, you've been recruited to live on a space station for two years uh, as this test because Earth is dying and we're going to need to move everybody into space. And we need to make sure everybody of all walks can live there. So we're going to, you're going to represent asshole recluse portion of the population, I suppose. Uh, and we're going to come back in like a year and we're going to start doing these tests and then you're going to be gone for a long time. And Saoirse Ronan, uh, her character is named Hen, short for Henrietta. Okay. Uh, we're going to equip your home with a Paul Mezcal clone so you don't get lonely. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, the sounds day... Like, sounds like Moon. A little bit. Uh, yeah. The day when the clone arrives doesn't ever come. Like, we don't have that scene. Oh. It's like, okay, Paul Mezcal, you're away and here's your clone and we know what's going on. And how do you react to this clone? How does the clone behave? Uh, none of that. No, that interesting sci-fi stuff. Do we just skip to later or we just never get there? Well, we we keep skipping around about how a, a lot of time is going to pass before he's going to go away. And 45 minutes of this film pass and they're just sort of wandering around in this very Malikian kind of way or Malikian ripoff kind of a way. Right. Where there's a lot of sustained shots of these beautiful ruined landscapes. and Do, do hands they, touch wheat? There's point? no, there's no like hands. fingers underneath a faucet, and there's okay. no hands brushing across wheat. They don't, they don't go right. quite that far. All right, all right. Uh, we but do yeah, the classics. Like, do the classics. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like we're gonna make a, make love under the stars and have these completely perfunctory, not at all deep conversations about how far away the sky is, and uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it it's really insufferable. It is just not interesting. Uh, and and the Paul Mezcal character begins behaving like more and more erratically to the point where you suspect either he or both of them are legitimately schizophrenic. Okay. Like they there's a scene where um, Paul Mezcal sees a burning barn in the distance and his only instinct is to run straight into it. Like like a horse running into a burning is barn. Is he trying to save something? No, he just wants the... oh. to go inside and then he's like rescued and pulled pulled out. There's this oh. weird subplot about these like oversized beetles that are crawling around and I'm not sure okay. uh, what they re- just... Is it like, you know, kind of like plague imagery or something kind like Kind of, that? like yeah. they, they find them inside the house and it's like, oh, what is it? And they, he starts talking to the bug and having a conversation with it. And later, and the Terrence character comes back and starts doing tests on him, but they're these really bizarre tests. Like, go into the room, I'm going to lock the door, face, like, the wall, like, really close, and mm-hmm. don't don't look at me, and answer questions about your, your sex life with your wife. And then, like, in the middle of answering a question, you're like, slap something on his wrist and say, oh, that's just to monitor your, your, your water levels. Like, what the, what is happening here? It feels like there should be something sinister happening. It feels like they're going to, uh, like, pull some kind of twist where it's like, mm-hmm. actually, your husband is already up there, and mm-hmm. we, we think your clone might be malfunctioning. He just doesn't know he's a clone, that kind uh, of thing. Maybe it's something like that, maybe it's not. I don't want to say what it is. I'll say that when they finally reveal, uh, sort of like, 
what's been happening in this movie and what you know the true nature of the Paul, yeah. you know the Paul Mescal's thinking is and what's been going on with Saoirse Ronan's character it kind of undoes a lot of that weird stuff that happened before in a good way no it was just oh. depressive faffing about <laughs> for like an hour and a half. I want that on the poster. Depressive, Depressive about. laughing about them. Exclamation point. Whitney Seibold. I think I used that phrase in my review. So they could, they could quote that if they want. They quote it in the podcast. Um, it's fine. Uh, so it, it, it doesn't come to an interesting conclusion. It does have a twist that doesn't affect the previous events of the movie. So it's not really a twist. It's just a new thing that happens. Yeah, it's not a twist. Uh, and, really, yeah. and it doesn't a really. twist should, add, like make you reevaluate yeah. shit, you know? And it's not bringing us to any kind of like interesting emotional places. It's just these people being sad and miserable and kind of insane out in the middle of this uh, farmhouse in a science fiction story with frustratingly little science fiction Ah. and a premise that they said right up front was going to be interesting. We're going to give you a Paul Mezcal clone. Yeah. Get to that. Have a story about that. Have a story directly about that. We know what's going like there was a movie called... um, uh, with Dan Stevens called "I'm Your Man" from uh, I missed that one. I heard, I heard about it. Yeah. Where uh, it's yeah. about a, a a woman who decides to test essentially a companion android played by Dan yeah. Stevens, who is like built to her ex- exact specifications and is built to love her. But he also behaves like a robot. He's very robotic. He, you know, kind of an android, uh, uh, cold mechanical kind of guy. But he's you know programmed to be a love bot. And he looks yeah. like Dan Stevens, so you kind of are half convinced of his humanity. Uh, I like stories like that. We're kind of pondering the nature of artificial intelligence. When does this intelligence emerge, if at all? Yeah. I want... You You said that's what this movie was going to be. And again, I don't mo- need movies to follow down a, like a predictable path. But... If I, the movie offers you something... If the movie brings up something more interesting a, than what it's giving you... Yeah, that, if, it, that's bring, if it brings up something interesting and then doesn't do it for an hour... I'm going to get a little pissed off. Yeah. Especially if, again, if it wasn't, if what you were watching wasn't super fascinating. Mm. I mean, if it was, then you wouldn't care. Yeah. But apparently you do. Mm. So that sucks. So th- so that's faux. It's. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> faux. Faux. No. no. <laughs> that's a great review. That should just be the whole review right there. Just, no. <laughs> Love it. Um, all right. From here. Okay. So you have two more features. I have one more feature, and then we have the Roald Dahl shorts. All right. Why don't we just finish up the features? Okay. Uh, why don't we move from that into Totally Killer? Tell me about Totally Killer. Okay. Uh, this is, uh, I like Totally Killer a lot. You told this me. Is really I, great. I didn't um, get a chance to watch this, but I, I, it, it's, it was co-written by someone who I know a little. Uh, Sasha oh. Pearl Raver. Uh, okay. Who has done like a lot of work in like you know the entertainment media and stuff like that? So uh, this is a film that was directed by Nanachka Khan, mm. who did a, a film called Always Be My Maybe a couple of years ago mm. um, with Randall Park, and that that wasn't a film I saw. I like that movie a lot. Okay. Uh, this is it's called Totally Killer, and it's a, an homage to slasher movies in a really fun way. Uh, it's a slasher movie. It takes place in uh, twenty twenty three. And it's about a teenage girl. Uh, she's uh, played by uh, Kiernan, Shipka. Kiernan Shipka. Yeah. Who uh, who I like her. She's she's great. I, I saw her as a, a child, and she's growing into like a, a really strong actress. Yeah, I didn't see the Chilling uh, Adventures of Sabrina, but every time mm-hmm. I've seen her in something, she's always been a standout. And uh, and she's sixteen. It's twenty twenty three. Her mom is, and Halloween is coming up. 
Mm-hmm. And her mom is really paranoid because 16 years earlier, it's like the movie Halloween happened. Mm-hmm. Three, uh, three young women were slain by a masked killer uh, on Halloween night. And she barely escaped, the mom did, and now it's the present day and she has all of these rules uh, imposed on her child's life. And, you know, you have to take self-defense classes and mm-hmm. you have to have pepper spray just in case the killer happens. And that's been become a big bone of contention between these two characters. Sure. Uh, also, um, the Kiernan Shipka's character, uh, let me look up the character's name, uh, Jamie. Okay. Uh, Jamie's best friend uh, works down at the local uh, carnival, like the local Halloween carnival. Yeah. And she's built an exhibit for the science fair that they're having at the carnival, and it's a functional time machine. <laughs> okay. It's been a while That's... since I've seen a, a teenager build a, science, a time machine for the local mm. science fair. You know what? It still works. Yeah. It's still a sweet little efficient piece of storytelling, this it's... magical thing that you just yeah. kind of have to accept. It... And once they present it to you without yeah. any kind of explanation, just I can make a time machine, uh-huh. you say, ah... <laughs> I am I am with you. Either you're with the movie, well, and usually you are, there's, or there's, you're one of those assholes who doesn't want to accept like a certain kind of brazen fantasy element. There's a certain there's a certain logical element to screenwriting or any really storytelling mm-hmm. where the audience is very eager to accept weird ideas and coincidences at the start of a story. Yeah. Because that's the inciting incident. Like, the, it's a coincidence that you happen to meet this person on a train. Mm. Okay? You can accept a coincidence at the beginning. At the end, much harder to get us to accept a coincidence. Yeah. Because you've established rules, you've established expectations, you've established an ongoing narrative that we are following. So if you're going all the way through a movie where there is no time travel, and at the very end, by the way, both a time travel mm. machine... I mean, it might work as a joke, okay. but you also might want to reject that. Yeah. So well, it works at the beginning. You can get away with it. I feel like there's been a, a habit in a lot of like big fantastical movies to explain every step to get yeah. there. And that, that was the big thing with like a lot of the superhero movies. Yeah. Well, how did they come to become a Batman? Well, yeah. how about just there's a Batman and we accept that. Yeah. That, that, that was what Tim Burton did. It's like, yeah, we're there's fine. just a Batman. We, Adam we West we didn't explain we didn't... shit. Yeah. <laughs> His parents died. That's why. And he's rich. Done. That's all you need. Yeah. Bats are scary. Man, why, done. Why is there a Riddler? Who the fuck cares? There's a Riddler. <laughs> the, the fact that we have one is more interesting. Uh, anyway. Um, That's only one school of thought. I suppose They're so. They're also but, good. Other but yeah. And totally killer. Uh, there's a functional time machine. Yeah. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, here in 2023, the killer reemerges. Uh, same mask, same knife, and goes after the mom and kills the mom. Mom dies. Luckily, we have a time machine. Mm. So uh, our main character, Jamie, gets in the time machine, travels back in time to 1987 to try to stop the original killings from happening and catch the killer back then ah. uh, in the hopes that causality will undo the murder of her mother in the future. Okay. Um and she messes up spectacularly. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't, and I don't want to say like the, the little kind of twists along the way, but yeah. um, but this movie takes a lot of time to sort of put this teenage character from 2023 back into 1987. First of all, everybody's smoking, <laughs> which is a great gag. That is, that is, that is true. There were smoking yeah. sections in public restaurants. Yeah, like there's Remember a, that? There's a scene where it's like, oh gosh, I need to get to the high school and some stranger says, I can give you a ride. It's like, what? You you could be a serial killer. It's 1987. I'm not a serial killer. We just give, give people rides all the time. Yeah. Like I'm wearing like, a tracksuit. Everyone like was a, a serial Uber. killer. 
Yeah. It's like, fine, I'll get it. And then they see her dropping off at the school and she opens the door and all the cigarette smoke billows out and she's coughing. And everybody's behaving totally crassly and inappropriate. Yeah. She's like, she's like, no, that's not an appropriate thing to say. Fuck off. It's 1987. We're really rude. I hope they all say it's 1987. No, they don't say that. Okay. But that's, that's the idea. And yeah. she, so she gets to go to high school with her own teenage mother and uh, she, you know, of course, says, I'm actually an exchange student from Canada. Yeah. And sure. uh, has to become friends with like people she knew as adults and you know, kind of reestablish the relationships. Everything's really sweet, the way people talk. It has that kind of, not to compare it to, to Back to the Future, but that kind of slick Zemeckian feel. That's fine. Uh, like it's a great Z- film. Z- Robert Zemeckis made these really tightly locked for the most part these tightly locked together kind of uh, slick hollywood action or blockbusters uh, beginning and, uh, whisker anyway yeah yeah, yeah. And, and even at the end you did this, yeah. uh, these technical exercises stuff like the walk and beowulf like it was really experimental i would just argue that they were more tightly yeah. constructed back in the 80s but i suppose enough. so yeah. um yeah the, just the screenplay sings nice. uh one of those things like oh we need to get out of town why don't why don't we just like hide somewhere from the killer i know we'll go to my spooky cabin in the woods no <laughs> this is the wrong location uh the, and there's some fun things with causality but they kind of play with the rules where it's not just causality. like oh no what if i, I killed my mom would i disappear and somebody says no this isn't magic <laughs> like you're you're here aren't you, you wouldn't just vanish like, well, but, but then I wouldn't know you're here. Like, this is time now. Yeah. Uh, which means, oh, shoot, I actually am affecting causality. So when I go back to, to my time, everything's going to be fucking different. And, <laughs> and that becomes like a big problem in the movie. Like, how much am I changing the future? Because this can't be changed anymore. Yeah. If I, if I killed a butterfly, it could yeah. cause a hurricane. And they're like, mm. oh, God, I've killed nothing yeah. but butterflies. So, uh, yeah. like, she's trying to stop these murders, but the killer is there and the killer is getting away with some pretty wicked shit. Uh, and there, there is a lot of blood and there's a lot of stabbings. So it's functional as sort of a fun send up of back to the future, but also a fun send up of slasher movies and also just a really good teen drama. There's like an element of Heather's in there as well. I'm I'm sure back to the future meets Heather's was the elevator pitch. I bet the elevator pitch was Peggy Sue got scaried. There you go. Peggy Sue got scaried. But updated, so the past is now 1987. Sure. Um, it's kind of odd seeing a time travel movie, because imagine in Back to the Future. Mm. It was made in 1985, but it, they go back in time to 1955. Yeah. They're, and when I was when that movie came out, I was a kid. Sure. So 1955 was some distant, faraway place. It felt place really that, far that away. That I had never heard of. No, I... Like, it was teaching me about the 50s. Yeah, no, that was, like, where our conception of this stuff, mm. when you're young, these movies were, like, telling you, no, this is what it was like. I'm like, mm. oh, okay. I believe you. Yeah. And now it's like when that's in your own timeline, it must have been so weird for my parents to watch Back to the Future yeah, when my, they grew up in the 50s. Yeah, my, my mom was born in 1950. My dad was born yeah. in 1940. It's like yeah. they wouldn't respond to Back to the Future the way I did. It'd be very, very different. Uh, I mean, it'd be worthwhile, but like it'd be a no, very different vibe. And here's what's fun about Totally Killer, because you look at Back to the Future, that's made in the 80s, which was a very conservative time. Yeah. And a lot of uh, sort of political thinking and language in the 1980s was hearkening back to a very conservative 1950s. Yeah. The people who were uh, born in the 50s or were raised in the 50s were now making movies, so they were all very kind of nostalgic about the 1950s. Some movies yeah. are very critical of it, like Parents is, is oh, sure. not a nostalgia piece. It's like anti-nostalgia. But uh, Back to the Future was uh, sort of interplaying with the present and the nostalgia for the past and how those things kind of overlap and how they don't jibe well sometimes. We have that with the 80s now. 
Yeah. I, I feel like we're a little f- a few years too late. I think we're now getting into like 90s and even 2000s nostalgia in 2023. Mm. But I feel like there was a really strong strong nostalgia for the 1980s and this has mm-hmm. that same thing uh same dynamic as well about the 2020s looking back to 1987 yeah seeing it as really far away kind of a fun time but also we're deconstructing all of the like horrible shit that was going on and yeah. and the sexism and the darkness and golly all those cigarettes yeah. that were consumed in the 1980s um so it's also interrogating a lot about our own past and our relationship with certain kind of genre movies and how modern youths don't have that kind of relationship anymore. Uh, Scream gets name checked in the movie as well. It's like, this is just like Scream. What's Scream? It's a, oh shit. Okay. It hasn't come out yet, but you'll like it. (laughs) But you know, for, for the main characters, Scream is even, yeah, that's older. 30 years beyond. Yeah. Um, there's a movie that sounds, again, I didn't say this one. sounds like really liked it. That's awesome. Uh, but there's a movie I really, really like. There's a similar premise called the final girls. Did you ever watch that? Oh, I didn't see the final girl. Yeah, it was, I think uh, I, st- I started and had to turn it off. It was really good, reason. actually, and it's about uh, a girl whose uh, her mother uh, died when she was younger, but her mother was an actress, and like her big claim to fame was the starring role in a slasher movie, like a Friday Thirteenth summer camp slasher. Uh, her mother died in a car accident, and now she's left with this weird legacy of her mom, where her mom is still kind of famous. There's still like midnight screenings of the movie, but the, she's most famous for dying, okay. which is something that's very, very weird for her to have to live with because her mom is actually dead. Uh, she She's talked into going on uh, to like a midnight screening. There's a fire in the movie theater and the only way out is through the movie screen and they end up in the movie. Oh, that's fun. So now she's trying to save her mom from being killed by the serial killer in the movie, but there's full of, it's, it's full of like movie rules. And, like, things that they can't do. Like, they can't leave places that the movie never filmed. There's a bit at the beginning where, like, they're on the side of the road. And then, like, the, the, the one of the campers shows up in a van. And it's like, hey, guys, let's go back to the camp. Everything's going to be great. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. That's a trap. Everyone's going to die. We're just going to stay right here. And the guy's, oh, okay. And he drives away. The movie is 96 minutes long. The movie in the movie. 96 minutes goes by. Hey, guys, let's go to the camp. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's really fun. It's, I, I, again, I haven't seen this new one, um, but if you like that, you should check out The Final Girls, too, because I really like all right. it. Um, all yeah, right, gonna... it this, this one's on Prime Video. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's just, it's so much fun. It's just hmm. like, it feels like a, a kind of uh, slasher movie they just don't make anymore. Yeah, and, and I had a, a really, really big blast. Right, I'm going to take it from here, and I'm going to uh, take it to a horror movie that is arguably very effective, but I would not call it fun. Hmm. It's not a fun horror movie. It's a very intense horror movie. It's called When Evil Lurks. Uh, it is an Argentinian slash American co-production. Uh, it is about uh, two brothers uh, who live like kind of in the rural area, middle of nowhere. And uh, they hear, like, gunshots in the woods at night. And when they go to investigate, they see, like, a guy's been, like, cut in half. And he's got, like, a a briefcase that's full of, like, weird instruments. And he doesn't know what what that means. And so they start, like, sort of, like, searching the area. See if there's any, like, evidence of what the hell happened. And they run into one of their neighbors, an impoverished family living in, like, a shack. And they're like, um, hey, did you guys know there's, like, a guy who was like killed in the woods and they're like oh shit we've been waiting for him for a year 
Oh, jeez. Oh, uh, okay. Why were you waiting for him for a year? And they go inside. Is the character named Godot? <laughs> uh, one of the, the, the old lady who lives there, one of her sons, has become what the movie calls rotted. Hmm. He has been possessed by some kind of demonic force, and it is rotting away at his body. He is bloated. He is full of covered in like juicy pores, Ooh. and like he's just a really like just in a very he's gross, rotten, yeah. yeah, very gross, rotted state. Uh, and they're like, "Oh shit!" Because it turns out in the world of this film, that's just a thing that happens sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting actually to see a horror movie where like something like supernatural and horrific happens and it's supposed to be the real world it's not like you know some kind of weird fantastical you know like Paul Bettany is a super priest kind of thing it's like no 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 like it's actually like a recognizable reality it's just that yeah every once in a while someone will become possessed by a demon and it's the sort of thing you, you hear about but you don't think it ever happened in your own town uh-huh. and the whole thing is you're supposed to call the government they're supposed to send someone over there to exercise that demon and then that's supposed to be it. Well, bureaucracy got in the way, and this one has been festering for a year. Oh, and geez. that's extra bad, because in this world, if you're infested by a demon, it's using you as a cocoon. Oh, so something's going to hatch out of this guy. Yeah, something's going to hatch out of this guy. And so their first thought is, well, let's just kill him. And like, no, 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 no. That's worse because that releases the demon. And there's a moment in this movie where like uh, uh, the demon stuff starts to get out. And someone's like, okay, there's a demon in that goat. And they're like, they're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta do this. And it's very intense. There it goes. Sorry. They shoot the goat. It's all CG. It's nothing bad happened to the goat. Mm. Um, they shoot the goat. And then immediately within like one second, his wife who was sitting next to him hits him with an ax. <laughs> it's like instantaneous. Boom. And then, she starts chopping at her own head with the axe. Love it. Oh my God. The violence in this movie is so unusually intense. Just absolutely. Like usually in a horror movie, it always feels like there's like a line they won't cross. Oh, uh-huh. surely that character won't die. And if they do die, they're not going to die brutally on camera in the middle of, in the middle of like total surprise in the middle of nowhere. Right? No. When evil lurks, will do that at any fucking time and it is always fucking horrifying there's a scene in this movie where a mother is walking down the street with her child they're both dead and she's just doing something while she walks that i've never seen in a movie before and it is deeply fucked up and whoever came up with that is a very good horror filmmaker, but also that's very fucking dark, and I really want to talk to you about it. There's a sequence in the middle of this movie when the shit has hit the fan. Our characters have made some very poor choices about that rotted, and now things are going to get bad real quick. Things are going to escalate quickly. It is not an isolated incident. A lot of people are going to be affected by this. And he goes to try to, like, rescue his kids or with his his ex-wife and she thinks he's just like being an asshole and like not you know violating a restraining order and everything it's like no no we're all gonna die <laughs> this, no. this now is not the time for the paperwork we're all gonna die we have to go i know something you don't nobody believes him nobody definitely believes him until it's way too fucking late and then a sequence of events occurs which is so shocking in rapid fucking fire succession that i was legitimately impressed and i started to wonder 
how in God's name is this movie going to sustain this level of intensity? It's not the longest movie in the world, but how is it going to sustain this level of intensity? And the answer to that question is, it's not. Oh, so it, it runs out of steam or it, it goes it, some... It, 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 here's what happened. It goes somewhere more somewhere it, goes some, it goes somewhere annoying. Where it's annoying is maybe annoying to me, maybe not to everyone else. The idea of this world where the supernatural like infection is just a reality to people that they have to deal with, and that this is just a thing that happens, is really interesting to me. And there's a kind of like um, it's it's this weird religious bleakness to it. Okay, you know where it's like, yeah, we we know that there are demons and stuff, right? Does it change the way we we act? No. Yeah, <laughs> which is very, a, which is very appropriate nowadays. I think it used to be like things like, oh yes, I would avoid that like the plague. Well, it turns out half the country d- doesn't avoid plagues. <laughs> yeah, so like a lot of that attitude towards this is actually kind of it doesn't well, really feel like it's doing that on like directly, but it feels apropos. There's, um, a, there's a great gag in uh, in Futurama of all things, yeah. uh, where they're talking about, oh, we don't have access to a lot of old VHS tapes. They were all wiped out about 200 years ago during the Second Coming of Jesus, and it's like, oh, oh, Jesus returned, and, yeah. and now we're just sort of back to normal. Like it was just yeah. this nothing thing that happened. We're, people are weird like that, yeah. man. So like, there's that element is really interesting, and I for a while I'm really fascinated by this like world that they've inhabited and the way that they are slowly revealing information about it what is common knowledge what do people know it turns out there's kind of like a nursery rhyme about the rules about how you handle the rotted and it's like it feels like something you would you do to teach kids yeah like don't when there's a rotted in your town don't use electric lights they like those for some reason uh-huh. we don't know why all that kind of shit all of that's really really cool as the story progresses and it feels like well we have to kind of like tell a story <laughs> can't just be shit that keeps happening and spiraling um <laughs> as we meet new characters who know more about what's going on and have backstory to tell and then we like get back to those like strange devices that were in that like briefcase or whatever it starts becoming more conventional uh-huh. in a way that's just disappointing it's 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 still not a bad movie i want to make that clear and i think when it is intense it's as intense as any horror movie i've seen in a long time okay um, there are moments of violence in this movie and again you know if that's for you or not I'm going to make that clear I'm not telling you if you have like you know a constitution that isn't into that to go see this movie this is a very intense violent movie if that sounds exciting to you you're going to get something out of this I just think that they made some choices to like double down on stuff like mythology or whatever mm-hmm. uh, later in the movie that just robbed of its immediacy. It just felt more like you're setting up ground to cover later in a sequel if you really wanted to. Okay. And it I, I, maybe that isn't what they were doing, but that's kind of how it feels. And that's just, man, it was so close to being something that felt truly new. Like we talked about how like the exorcism movies are kind of dime a dozen. Yeah. Like th- this one felt like a different take on it. Okay. For a, for a good long time, and I guess mostly it still is. But just towards the end, it's just like teetering more towards the end of conventional and i was like i feel like hannibal Lecter. no 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 you were doing fine <laughs> and this ham-fisted mythology you just throw in at the end it won't do um <laughs> so i was a little disappointed at the end but mostly it's very very intense this is in select theaters right now but it soon will i think before the end of the month it'll be on shutter so it'll be more available right. uh, if it's not playing near you because it's very limited right now um 
And then uh, before we get into the Roald Dahl shorts, we have one last movie. Uh, tell me about mm-hmm. Dicks, the musical, which I was very disappointed <laughs> to find out had nothing to do with that uh, Kirsten Dunst, Michelle Williams film. No, the, yeah. the movie Dick, which is yeah. about Dick Nixon. No, yeah, played by the great uh, Dan Hedaya. Hmm. Yeah. No, this is uh, based on a good musical. This actually. is based on an off-Broadway musical <laughs> yeah. called "Fucking Identical Twins," uh, and it was written by uh, Aaron Jackson, Aaron Jackson, and Josh Sharp, who star in this movie. Okay, uh, and it's an aggressively R-rated film. Okay. Very, very crass. I, I saw the trailer and it looked like a very ambitious trauma film. In, in its tone. In its tone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Maybe it, not its it, violence, it, it, but like, yeah. Not in its violence, but yeah, it has some weird shit in this movie. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's uh, Aaron Jackson and Josh Sharp, who aren't brothers, uh-huh. and they don't look alike. Yeah. But they're identical twins. Got it. By the conceit of the movie. Got it. Uh, at the start of the movie, they're uh, in New York. They're both hotshot salesmen. They're both thieves and misogynists. They are dicks. And uh, they're seen like shoplifting right at the beginning and mistreating women and talking about how their dicks are huge. That's the opening song. Okay. Uh, to establish who these guys are. And they're both hotshot uh, salespeople who sell uh, Roomba parts. Not Roombas. Okay. But the parts for Roombas. And there's oh, a lot, of, lot of jokes about it. You gotta sell wheels and those little tiny brushes. And uh, there's a big scorecard in the new office that they've both moved into. They, they get the same job. They move in from the same office. They're both number one salesmen. They're really competitive mm. at first. And they have a song about how nobody understands who they are. And they discover in this song that they were born at the exact same date, a minute apart. It's like, wait a minute. And I was raised with my mom, and I was raised with my dad. So it's parent trap. It's the parent trap. Okay. They say, well, we've we've never had a, the family we've always wanted. And they, they even say crass lines of dialogue. Well, single-parent homes aren't real families, as we all know. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's, know, a fa- kind of, it's, they, they, it's clearly that they know yeah. what they're doing, yeah. Uh, oh, and their boss, Megan the Stallion. <laughs> Playing so, herself? No, she plays uh, their boss. Okay. She but can she, have a side hustle making room of parts. In case this music thing doesn't pan out. Whatever stability. It's a hugely successful musician. Yeah. But, uh, she's kind of playing herself though. Like she's yeah, playing, playing playing into her stage personnel yeah. a lot. And uh, and she gets a number, of course. Of course. My God, you're not gonna, you're gonna hire Megan these Stallion. Can you imagine if they didn't give her a number? Hmm. To be rioting in the streets. Yeah, the, <laughs> I would be furious leaving that theater. Yeah, these two guys come up with a plan. Hey, I have an idea. Why don't we impersonate each other? And of course, they like switch wigs. One of them has long hair and one has short. They don't look anything like each other. Right. Uh, And uh, they say, well, we'll switch parents for a day. You get to meet my dad and I'll meet your mom and we'll kind of get to know each other's parents. And then we'll scheme to get them together. We'll take them to La Restaurant, which is the most romantic location in town. Uh, Mom is played by Megan Mullally. Great. Very funny. And, and, uh, the thing with Megan Mullally is she's insane. Like she, she wears like vegetable necklaces and uh, you know has sex with tchotchkes in her house. Okay. And it's revealed uh, that when, when uh, several years before that her genitals fell off and are now like this disembodied thing she keeps in her purse. So yeah, we got tra- we got trauma vibes all over this That's thing. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Dad is played by Nathan Lane. Okay. Who. Uh, who comes out as gay to his, to the wrong son. Okay. It's like, it turns out I'm gay. Oh, really? 
I wouldn't have guessed, Dad. You're you're gay, and because yeah. he lives in, uh, he's essentially like re- reprising his role from the Birdcage. Like he's very mm-hmm. uh, kind of has this very flamboyant home. Yeah, it's like yeah, well, you know, I was I was with your mom, but I also have sex with men a lot. Not as many as I'd like, but a lot. And I just sort of hang around and do queer things like hang around and sing musicals and spend time with my sewer boys. <laughs> You're what? And he pulls across a curtain Sounds and there's these like. two little mutant creatures that he keeps in a cage <laughs> that he spits ham at to feed. Uh, this movie's fucking weird. <laughs> And golly, it's funny. Uh, I I just was laughing like a complete asshole in this theater. Because <laughs> it's it's sick and it's weird and it's stupid and it's all low humor, but it is so well-timed. That's and all it's it counts. So, so beautifully, comedically well-presented. And these characters are, you know, everything is crass and terrible, but that's not, it's not a detriment to comedy. That can be very, very funny. Uh, and... The jokes it's land, really, really the funny jokes here. land. Yeah. That's what it is. Uh, the songs are really good. good. You're not going to be humming them on the way out, but they're, yeah, they're really kind, bummer, of, okay. kind of spoofy and fun and upbeat in that uh, musical kind of a way. It's, it's a bummer when you see a musical and mm-hmm. there's no, like, there's not one that you take with you. Yeah. You want at least one that's, mm-hmm. like, at the very, like, even, like, there's a lot of, like, newer musicals which are just, like, fine. Yeah. Like, um, I know, I, and it's a cute movie. I like it fine, but, like, um... Anna and the Apocalypse is like this Christmas zombie musical. Yeah, yeah I wasn't so fond of that it, one. It, yeah. Like it's like as a as a zombie movie, it's fine. As a musical, it's got like one and a half good numbers. It has the Hollywood ending number, which, uh, which is great. the one I remember and uh, from that from Anna a, and the Apocalypse. And then there's a good one like just before they find out zombies. It's all about hey, it's a brand new day mm. and I'm miles away. Mm. That one's okay. The rest of them I couldn't mm. hum or tell you a lyric and uh, put a gun to my head. Uh, this movie has the vibe of a bunch of guys just fucking around. It was directed by Larry Charles, who did um, uh, Borat and The okay. Dictator and and was one of the um, creators of Seinfeld. Yeah. Uh, so um, he's got like a good long comedic career. I haven't liked his movies up until now. Like I like Borat. I like the first Borat's Borat. Pretty good. Yeah. Um, didn't like The Dictator. I thought it was pretty Oh, Dictator's terrible. terrible. Yeah. yeah, really. Uh, but here it's like we have just enough budget to hire Megan Mullally and Nathan Lane and, and Megan Thee Stallion. And Megan Thee Stallion. I imagine like 80% of the budget was just getting Megan Thee Stallion for like a day. Uh, and we're going to shoot this thing that we made up at the UCB theater, obviously like in 2015 mm-hmm. that we kind of just improvised and we're going to do this crass, stupid thing. And we're going to convince these celebrities to do it. There's outtakes over the credits where we get to see, you know, people blowing their lines and, you know, alternate takes of improvisation. And poor Nathan Lane, like, says multiple times, I don't believe I'm doing this movie. Like, this movie, like, I've had some some low points in my career, but this is, like, one of the, like, he's saying this to the camera. Like, Nathan Lane, unscripted. (laughs) So this, this has, like... We're gonna get to we're gonna get together and do something kind of fun friends vibe to it, which I like. I like yeah. that. I like that these people are just putting on a show. There is it jejun and and really crass. Yes, but that's the point. They clearly got up on a stage late at night at some point at the and this was at the UCB theater uh, here in Los Angeles. Yeah. I'm not sure if I don't don't think Megan Mullally. I know she's from LA, uh, but I don't think she came up through UCB. I think. Um, I don't know. 
I was actually looking her up. She was in movies like Once Bitten. She was. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I rewatched uh, that like a year or two ago, okay, and I was really uh, surprised. That she, yeah, she's she not was, like a small role. She's one of the te- she's one and, of the teenagers. Yeah, yeah she's uh, and uh, and she was in Blue Velvet. Uh, and it, she was deleted from Blue Velvet. I was about to say because there's like uh, apparently there's like whole college sequence that okay, was yeah, filmed she, that they never she put was, in the movie. She was uh, Kyle MacLachlan's girlfriend that he left oh, behind. Wow. Oh, that must suck to have a really big role in a classic movie yeah. that got cut. And and yeah, all Can those sequences, all those scenes were cut. So uh, it was like, yeah, no, I was in the uh, I was in Pulp Fiction. I had a whole subplot, and they just cut it. Yeah, and I've never acted since. Boom. <laughs> that would suck, right? Um, but yeah. So, yeah, so, so sounds, they, sounds good. They, they convince Megan Mullally uh, and they convince Nathan Lane to uh, appear in this totally gross trauma esque kind of splatter musical with sex jokes and dick jokes and any any kind of cra- disembodied vaginas, any any kind of crass things you want to think about. Right. Uh, and but it, there's something weirdly innocent about all of that. Like these guys are just having a good time That's trying to shock you. That, it, like it, it almost has, an, and it's not doesn't quite reach the sublime highs of like a John Waters, mm-hmm. but that's clearly the the heights they're going for. Right. Like we're going to say like as sh- trying to be as shocking as possible, mm-hmm. but there's this weird kind of sweetness to it. That's the trick. If you can be shocking or gross or, mm-hmm. or even offensive, but you can make it seem like it's like sweet or mm-hmm. or naive. Or, like or, not, or not innocent, hate, not hateful. Yeah, that's the thing. If, if it feels weaponized, we can pick up on that. Yeah, and it just becomes. I don't care how good your timing is, distasteful. Mm. Uh, there's yeah, yeah there's a difference can, between yeah. being tasteless and distasteful. Yeah. Dix the musical is tasteless. Yeah, uh, and I love that. But yeah. it is not. It is not distasteful. That's a great uh, the only thing that's that's sort of holding it back is clearly they made it for a really low budget. Like there's a, a scene where they have to explore like a. I don't want to say where it is, but they have to explore like a new location. And it's like a plywood set you would have seen from like a TV show in like 1985. It looks really, really terribly cheap. But, you know, and and of course there's those creatures I mentioned. They're marionettes. You can see the strings and they make fun of the fact that you can see the strings. Right. Uh, I feel like there is a bigger budget version of this where they just went whole hog like West Side Story and just made a really big (laughs) slick musical. And that would have been fun too. But even this low budget thing where they're just kind of noodling around making dick jokes is is pretty (laughs) hilarious. Alright. And then that brings us finally to uh, our last film or shall I say films. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are a series of short films directed by Wes Anderson that were all released on Netflix. Not that they told anyone on the homepage. I had to go searching for them. I mean, it's it's that usual Netflix thing. They're, they're, okay. they're going to spend a lot of money on production. They're going to yeah. get these big, uh, high-profile directors and filmmakers and actors to make these big-budget movies and then not promote them. They spend all of the money on production rather than uh, uh, promotion and here's the deal i understand your netflix you don't necessarily feel the need to put out like a whole bunch of billboards or tv spots i can appreciate that uh when people click on netflix on their on their tv or on their computer maybe put the new releases up there like right up front yeah i mean occasionally you do also a lot of the time you don't and it's really fucking weird when you have New films from one of the most iconic filmmakers of their generation. Someone whose style is so pronounced that it is unmistakable even at a glance. Uh, someone whose arguably best film ever was an adaptation of a Roald Dahl story. Fantastic Mr. Fox. 
Uh, Arguably, you could, you could argue that. I yeah. would. I, I think it's you know with, with a lot of Wes Anderson movies, there's a lot of gray ones. I put Fantastic Mr. Fox at number one. Uh, and also, Rule Doll is you know like Netflix like bought the rights to that library. They're mm-hmm. like that's like their thing. They're trying to promote that. They had the Matilda musical, which came out last year. That was pretty good. And now they're why are you pushing this? What the hell is the matter with you? Well, but as 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 we've said in the past, it's it seems baffling to us the consumers. But it's Netflix isn't being made for consumers. I know. It's being made for the market, and they just, they just they care. want to increase the value of the company, not promote. I just the don't wares. I just under I just don't understand how not making people think your company has valuable stuff on it increases the value of your company. Maybe that's me. I don't know. But in any case, uh, they decided instead of having him do like a feature film or even like a feature anthology, and it feels like these shorts could be very easily edited together into like an anthology yeah, of sorts. Because there's kind of some bookending material. There, there's some commonalities to them. Um, uh, Ray Fiennes plays Roald Dahl hmm. in like, he has a, he had a shack that he always wrote in. And the opening, you, you can watch them in any order. They're not like in a specific order. But it feels like you're intended to watch The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar first because hmm. that introduces him as Roald Dahl and his writing space. It's also then, the longest one. It's that also the longest one's one. Like, that one's nearly 40 minutes. The other ones are only 17 each. Yeah. And it feels like, um, you know, later on in those other shorts, they'll occasionally cut back to Roald Dahl. And if you didn't have that intro, maybe you wouldn't get it. But it, it's pretty clear. Um and yeah, the, these are adaptation of, of four short stories from Roald Dahl, but these are not stories that he wrote for children. He wrote a lot of different stories about like his own life mm-hmm. or similar experiences that he had. So uh, true stories sometimes. Uh, some of his stories were adapted to things like Alfred Hitchcock Presents because they've got kind of like a little slightly demonic quality to them, something yeah. very suspenseful. And we, uh, on Cancel Too Soon, we talked about Way Out, yeah. which was the Roald Dahl anthology horror series that yeah. he hosted. He was on yeah. it. Yeah, and, and and you know what? Some good installments on that show. Actually. Yeah, it's, it's it's a pretty good show. Yeah, it's uh, largely forgotten, but it's worth seeking out if you ever get yeah. a chance. Um, Wes Anderson decided not to get in the way of Roald Dahl's prose. This is interesting, uh, and yeah. So each film uh, has is like a story within a story within a story. So we have Roald Dahl narrating, saying, "Here's." Mm. And, and he doesn't say, "I'm Roald Dahl," and he, but every, because yeah. it's Wes Anderson, they're all addressing the camera, yeah. and he just start, starts to describe a story he's writing and mm-hmm. then we cut to the interior of the story. Yeah. And within the story, the narrator continues to narrate directly mm-hmm. to the audience. And the narrator so, is a character on screen yeah. almost all the time. So this is like, I am an active participant in the proceedings. I am also constantly, not just once in a while, constantly looking at the fourth wall, narrating to you what's happening in like first person immediate tense. So when it comes to the character's dialogue, that's when another actor will speak. Yeah. But otherwise they'll cut back to the narrator and they'll even say things like he said. Yeah. uh, After a line of dialogue. It's absolutely fascinating to me. It's a really interesting narrative choice. It reminds me a little bit of Greta Gerwig's little women in that we're adapting stories from an author and we're keeping the author's voice as alive as possible within the text. Yeah. We are not trying to make it seem like this is just taking place in its own realm. You are being told a yeah, story. Well, the story exists uh, and the story of the storyteller telling the story exists. And and that's sort of, uh, kind of one of the big dangers when it just comes to any kind of literary adaptation to film. Uh, are we there because of the characters in the story, which is what we are for a lot of feature films? Sure. Or are we there for... The, the writer's prose mm-hmm. are we the there for the, the actual book. language and yeah. sometimes the language mm-hmm. is 
better and more important than the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there, there are plenty of uh, adaptations of Nabokov, for instance. Yeah, you, you don't. No, you don't need a movie of Nabokov. Mm-hmm. Read Nabokov. Right. R- settle down into Nabokov. Roll yeah. yourself up. And I feel the same way about Roald Dahl. He has some really a- acidic descriptions of things. Uh, yeah. There was a, a, in one of the shorts, uh, one of the characters speaks, and they describe him holding the word in his mouth as if he were gargling hot butter. And they actually, <laughs> and that, that that's. And we cut to the character's face, and it's like, yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not, they're not like literally doing it. It's just like, yeah, that's a good description of, of what that looks a little you, bit like. You don't like. want to adapt yeah. a Roald Dahl story and not have that little descriptor yeah, in there. No, so he had, Wes Anderson did that. He, he just had, put it in, the, in his shorts. Roald Dahl had very particular way with words. He liked to invent words. Uh, he... And listen, Roald Dahl, like a lot of other authors of yore and of the present, also kind of fucked up. All right? He's... Mm. I. Dated attitudes. Dated attitudes, uh, very bigoted in a lot of ways. It doesn't always come through in his stories. Sometimes it does. Uh, And I think Wes Anderson has done an excellent job of selecting stories that are a bit unusual. Some of these are a lot less... If you had told me he was going to adapt like the Rat Catcher, I would be like, really? Like nothing happens in the Rat Catcher. That's so weird. And yet... It's a very interesting choice. So the shorts are The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, The Swan, The Rat Catcher, and Poison. And we're going to talk about them individually. Uh, might as well start with The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. It is the longest. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch as the title character. Um, it's a story of a millionaire born into it, never earned it, and he's a shiftless layabout asshole and the only thing he likes to do is gamble idle idle rich yeah yeah yeah. just 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 an absolute piece of shit basically uh and then one day he uncovers just by chance a little pamphlet a little booklet scientific journal uh that details a uh doctor's experience interviewing a man who had developed the ability to see without using his eyes he would perform shows and he would wrap up his face and he would go to local doctors and say, please wrap up my face so completely that you would scientifically tell anybody it is absolutely impossible that I could see anything. And he would do that. And then he would do a whole lot of things like you would do even if you had perfect 2020 vision. He wouldn't stumble around. He could do, uh, he could read books. Uh, incredible stuff and the doctor is thoroughly convinced that it is real he interviews him he learns the story of how he was able to do that and henry sugar sees that sees that there's enough information in the book to perhaps do it himself and he realizes i can use this power to cheat at gambling <laughs> that's his only impulse and because he's the idle rich because he is so wealthy he doesn't have anything else to do in his life he has nothing else to do but mm. study and he spends his entire time studying how to do this. It's supposed to take you a whole lifetime, but because he's so rich, he has nothing else to do. He can do it in a few years. The way that the story goes and the direction yeah. that it goes in. Well, we spent a lot of time. First of all, we yeah. spent a lot of time in the past. That's true. Ben Kingsley like, plays yeah. the, uh, uh, the guy who, uh, the, the, the showman who had yeah, learned how to do this. Uh, yeah. We spent a lot of time in the past. We spent a lot of time on that flashback. Um, but what I love about this story, and I remember reading this when I was younger, um, the story admits that there is a natural, almost obvious, but very satisfying ending uh-huh. to how this would play out. 
then the story refuses to go there and it actually ends up going somewhere a little profound i feel a little mm. a little to, to, to argue uh that uh the, the simply the act of doing something can change you yeah i love the story of henry sugar uh I, I like those kinds of stories where uh, the point is the journey and not the destination yeah. and, the, and where you uh, see the, the end you seek is not going to be the end you you're going to want when you get there. Exactly. That's exactly uh, it. Yeah. And well, that's very ancient. That's Gilgamesh for yeah. God's sake. Yeah. Uh, so I like that. I like that there's a spiritual dimension to it. I like that Wes Anderson has gotten to play with, uh, he's gotten really good about his modular sets, mm-hmm. about how uh, like w- walls lift up and things sort of fold mm. open, and there's actually like visible stage hands in oh, all yeah. of these ones. You like fold the set open and just hand uh, people props and things, yeah. and it's all timed perfectly. Everyone's like mm. on it. It doesn't look like it's a mistake that's being revealed. It's clearly again we're calling attention to the creation of the tale yeah. while we are experiencing the tale. It's a really yeah. cool look. Uh, and and he's he loves those sort of folding over narratives as well. He's getting bigger on uh, stories within stories. Henry Sugar is the most complex yet because it starts with Rafe uh, finds his Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. It goes to Henry Sugar who then starts telling a story, uh-huh. which goes to Ben Kingsley. That's his story. But then Ben Kingsley, uh, 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 it goes to Dove Patel who plays the Doctor. Then it goes. Oh, to then ben it goes Kingsley. to Ben Kingsley. Yeah, and then, and ben, then Kingsley ben Kingsley tells, tells a story, story about how he first learned yeah. how to do this this talent. So we get to sort of see a flashback within that. So there's all these like sort of mm-hmm. nesting narratives, uh, but Wes Anderson is so natural at this stuff now. Yeah, it. It doesn't ever feel confusing or strange. It's no. just very, very natural. It's it's a it's it's so weird because it is so confrontational in how it is not trying to lull you into like a natural world mm. that it becomes the most natural thing in the world. Yeah, it's so great. I love but, that as opposed to all these. I don't love all the shorts equally, but I love his approach yeah. to all of them. They're really great. Uh, my, my least favorite is Poison. Really? Uh, I like because, that one a lot, actually. Oh, you that's like one, Poison, That's one of my right? favorites, actually. I'm oh, curious. Okay. Tell me why. Uh, well, Poison, is, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, again, plays a character uh, in it. and uh, Different character. Different character. And yeah. and it's, is it Dev Patel who plays the yeah. narrator? Okay. Dev Patel and, and Ben Kingsley um, are back as different characters. That's right. Yeah. And uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is in bed. Uh, when Dev Patel comes in, he's a roommate of some kind, and he... Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch can't move. He's yeah. like, what's going on? I think a super poisonous snake has crawled into bed with me, and if I move, it'll startle a snake, and it'll bite me, and I'll die. It's like the most the deadliest yeah. snake you've ever heard of. And it's about how uh, Dev Patel has to call the Ben Kingsley character. Who's a doctor. Uh, who, and they have to sort of manufacture a way to get the snake out of his bed. And everything has well, to, everyone has to move he, very and slowly. And he can't speak and he can't move because yeah. he might startle the snake. The, every single thing that they're doing, like, okay, we're going to do this thing where maybe if we put, like, laudanum or something, like, on the sheets, the snake will go to sleep. But we have to do it so slowly mm. that the snake won't be startled and it'll take, like, 20 minutes to do it. Obviously, it doesn't happen in real time. But, like, mm. it's, it's an exercise in suspense. And I think this actually mm. was, like, adapted for, like, radio or something like that okay. for a suspense. Uh, a thing um and it all leads to um a a, a development uh-huh. i will say that kind of an, uh, an explosive moment that you ex- didn't necessarily see yeah. coming and it ultimately all leads to after all the stuff after all the effort after all the care after all the professionalism mm. that ben kingsley's character has brought to saving this mm. white colonizer's life mm. 
one line of dialogue mm-hmm. that tells you how much it was worth it. He's, he's, and just he's still a white colonizer yeah. at the end of the day. And honestly, I think it is really handled well. I think mm. Wes Anderson. I think, I think it's not terribly fascinating development. But, no, I don't think I don't think it's fascinating. I just think it's I just think it hits hard. Oh, okay. Um, I think uh, you know because so much of his work is, um, you know, uh, twee. Sometimes, um, you know, they, it can have a lot of emotional depth, but it doesn't necessarily have an emotional punch hmm. always. Uh, and for me, it's like after all of that suspense, after all of that, really getting to know the characters and he really liked the doctor and he really liked Al Patel and all these things, just to have it culminate in a such a sort of a shocking exclamation. Uh-huh. Uh, and that that's what really what this is all about is actually, I think, very effective. But you thought it was I, I, just kind of pat, or like what? Well, yeah, I thought I thought it's like okay, and they they kind of like brought up a point, but it wasn't a very effective point. I didn't think it really hit that that oh, hard. Okay, well, it worked for me. All right, all right. Um, the one I think the one I, I admire its construction a lot, and I'm not entirely sure it works is the Swan. Hmm. Uh, the yeah. Swan is told uh, it's uh, Rupert Friend. R- yeah, Rupert Friend is the narrator, uh, and uh, he plays pretty much the whole thing himself there are mm. other characters in it but they really don't talk uh he is That's, illustrating it's, it's it's a monologue it's a monologue and he's it's it's his story it's like he's telling a story of when he was a child um and uh he's telling a story about uh these two kids in his neighborhood and they were these they were, they were those asshole kids you know the ones who were just jerks yeah and b- bullies who committed yeah, violence and harmed yeah. animals the, like Stephen King terrible. bullies yeah. basically just imagine that R- you, really, you've got an image in your head just like horrendously horrible bullies yeah. and it's a uh, yeah about a time when he was just horrendously bullied yeah like these two kids gun toting children yeah these like children like one of them had gotten like a gun for their birthday or Christmas or something and they were out just shooting animals like assholes indiscriminately just Mm. like assholes and this one little nerdy kid who was just out bird watching gets basically forced at gunpoint to do scary things to to placate the insecurities Mm. of these assholes and some of those things literally playing on the train tracks yeah like his, his life is legitimately threatened multiple times and it culminates in an ending which you know, you can you can look so, at it multiple ways. Yeah, um, but it could be fantastical. Maybe, maybe it's uh, maybe he was making the story up. Or, yeah, you know, we're not maybe sure it's deeply tragic. Maybe it's kind of inspiring. There's a couple of different ways to look at it. I think it's tragic and inspiring. I it's, guess that's it's, fair. it's both of those. Things. I think it's fair. Um, this is the most complicated construction though because it doesn't pretend it ever has the real sets. It's always mm. this like universe that is constantly building itself around yeah, him where he's yeah. like and i love i love the staging of it. i'll give you that i think it's, the staging there's, there's a lot of these long uh, yeah. long shots down uh like corn rows like a, like a maze yeah. of corn yeah yeah. And, we, and we kind of settle, but then, like we said, there's like stage hands, so they actually like open yeah. doors in the corn and like yeah. can't pass. He'll be like through walking and... through like the corn rows, mm-hmm. and then like all of a sudden he starts sinking a little bit, and you realize that there are now staircases underneath him you never yeah, knew were yeah. there before. What the, what they do at the train tracks oh, is really brilliant. Yeah. Really, really, just dazzling in its construction. I'm just not entirely sure that that construction tells the story that well Well, he's he's reminiscing right it's a it's a memory story and we have a a, this nesting doll kind of story about memories within memories this is about that kind of maze of sort of exploring through your childhood memories it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily a a solid series of events things kind of melt together and it becomes like 
I think it's even animated in one portion. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah, a little uh, bit. Like, there's yeah. a bit, like, through binoculars. Yeah. I think that's an animated, yeah. Uh, so, I think it's, like, putting together this uh, unreliable memory. Yeah. Like, I remember some things very, very sharply, but it's all kind of a wash in this, like, general childhood mm-hmm. experience. Well, it's a traumatic incident yeah. as well, so, you know, you, you might not always remember all the details very mm-hmm. clearly. I guess that may be fair. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'm being a little that, hard that, That's on what it. I liked about it. No, no, it, maybe yeah. I'm being a little hard on it. Um, also, it's just the most intense of all of them, just emotionally, yeah. suspense-wise. And it's just a story, too. Yeah. It's just a monologue. And it's, like it's, pretty, it's pretty brutal. Like, really sad things happen yeah. in it. Um, and, um, yeah, it just it's just not as... Uh, it doesn't have the whimsy of the rat catcher. No. Which is a, a tale with uh, Richard Iowate and uh, Rupert Friend again. Uh, and uh, Richard Iowate works in a small town at a newspaper, and right next to him is a mechanic played by Rupert Friend. Um, and their buildings, adjacent buildings, and there's like a haystack near them, have a rat problem. And R- Ray Fiennes shows up as the rat catcher, and he looks like he looks a like rat, a rat. man. Yeah, like, he like, looks like... He's, he's like, got like elongated incisors yeah. and little black eyes, and he hunches over. He's very yeah. rat-like. And, his, and he's incredibly proud of how much he knows about rats and he knows things about rats that that he, can't possibly be right he thinks like a rat yes. yeah yeah he's absolutely like completely he loves that even though he might be considered like sort of an outcast of society he works with vermin mm-hmm. he is unkempt but everyone needs a rat catcher sometimes <laughs> and everyone needs his expertise. And it doesn't matter if you're, you it's know, kind of a, a creep. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter if you're a mechanic or the King of England at some point, the rat catcher is going to tell you what's going to happen right mm-hmm. now. And he has let that go to his head a lot. And he's a very interesting, con- contradictory character in a lot of ways. And so a lot of very, it is just very arrogant about his knowledge <laughs> of rats. So a lot of it is just him trying to share and brag about his knowledge of rats and Richard Iowate and Rupert Friend, being like alternately fascinated and repulsed by everything that he's telling them Mm. and it gets to the point where like he just starts trying to impress them more and it ends (laughs) in like this one weird stop motion (laughs) sequence which is Mm. (sighs) i watched this one with my son and he really loved it interesting okay because uh, there's a lot of weird uh, narrative things. There's mime in this one. There's actually yeah. like a, a scene where he's like, and he pulled out this little canister. It was full of oats. But Ray Fiennes isn't holding anything. He's just miming the thing. Yeah. Uh, there's also a bit. It's like he produced some like rat corpses, but there's nothing in his hands. Well, there's like of... or like he puts like a rat like down his shirt, and there's like another one. He's not actually doing that. Yeah, fascinating. Just interesting mm. choices. Like you could have done it. Like there's no there's nothing there's no budget justification. Yeah. Clearly, this is a decision that. Wes Anderson is making to invite you to remember what it's like to read a story yeah. and actually have to do some of the goddamn work yourself. <laughs> and I actually really like that. Yeah. I think it's a bullet choice. It's it, it, a lot of people couldn't make that work, I think. And the, well, the and sort of, uh, um, you know, artificiality of Wes Anderson's style and staginess mm-hmm. allows for that. Yeah. And not just our familiarity with Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wes Anderson's style has become so familiar that people are like plugging it into like AI generators mm-hmm. and coming up with like, what if Wes Anderson made the X-Men? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, oh, there actually is a short that someone actually did the fucking work on for that oh, the, one. The, well, yeah, there's yeah. A, an actual short film where... Uh, yeah, that, that's like eight years old. Wes now, Anderson's but... X-Men, which I'm sure you've seen already. But, but like uh, they did like, a, what if Wes Anderson did The Lord of the Rings? And it's mm-hmm. just a bunch of Anderson stock players looking at the camera while dressed as Gandalf and yeah, shit. It's, it's, it's fun. 
That's fine. It's well, fine. but what um, is that? His style is easy to It's easy fake. to replicate. Yeah. Well, it's easy to fake. It's actually putting it... I, I don't think the AI could do the swan. Well, the swan I, is weirdly I wasn't asking the specific. AI to do the swan, but I'm yeah. saying that yeah. you could just say, give me something that looks like Wes Anderson, and even if a, com- a computer can replicate it, yeah. a reasonable facsimile. Because it's so, so um, striking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it's... But just because that's popular, that's not going to necessarily inure us to his sort of storytelling quirks. And I feel like he is such a, quite frankly, a strong storyteller. He's a great storyteller. Uh, especially when it comes, when he can just sort of like look at the camera and tell you what the story is. Mm-hmm. I, I like that he's bold enough to do that. Oh, like the confidence. Too, 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 too many filmmakers would say, no, we have to tell it visually or you sort of do it in a filmic mm-hmm. way. No, I just say it. Between this fine. and the K-Mutiny Court Martial, mm-hmm. we have like some really great examples of uh, Tell Don't Show, tell don't show yeah. and how it can work. Uh-huh. You know? I, lo- I really love these shorts. I think they're they're some yeah, of the best. I, I, I like all four of them. I, I think I think poison is a little uninteresting, but all, all the other yeah. they're all really aesthetically great. Yeah. I think the performances are really great, and I love that we just get to hear uh, Roald Dahl. I think uh, each each yeah. one also ends with a like a little Chiron giving the context of the story. Yeah, and how it was uh, created. How, yeah, when Roald Dahl uh, wrote it, like and what Roald compendium it went into. This much and, early on, finished it years and, later. It's based on this thing. friend of his that he knew. Like, uh, And I like that as well. Yeah. Because it, it is, like you said, trying to give you the experience of reading the story. Yeah. Not just telling you what the story was it's in not a, the story. It's not a substitute for the story. Yeah, yeah. It is, and it's, and it's not uh, just an illustration of it either. It is an attempt to bring it to life while keeping the original story alive as well. Yeah. That's very hard to do. And again, the only other movie I can think of offhand that does that really, really well is Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Maybe Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Does a good a job little bit, as well. yeah. yeah. But like, it's... There, and it's there are a lot of there's a lot of playful uh, mm-hmm. sort of meta narratives that are sort of folded into uh, certain mm-hmm. movies. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Derek Jacobi's introduction to Henry V, mm. uh, the Kenneth Branagh film. <laughs> Where he's wearing modern clothes and he shows up yeah. throughout to just say, this is all just a play. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Derek Jacobi's uh, epic introduction to Anonymous. Oh, God. <laughs> where he Derek, also shows up in modern clothes to Derek, say that all of Shakespeare uh, is bullshit. Derek Jacobi, like, believes that stuff. I know. Well, actually, I haven't checked in with him for a second. Yeah, maybe. maybe he's, he's, he's one mind, of those but... guys who's, who, for a while, was saying, no, Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays. There's no way. I don't know. Anyway. Um... Anyway, we should uh, we should review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale because that's it. Uh, if you're new, if you're unfamiliar, if you need a reminder, we review movies on a scale of C minus to C plus. Uh, C plus is the highest rating we can give a movie that is above average. All right, that's that's a movie we genuinely recommend. We think you should go out of your way to see it. Uh, C is average. That's an average movie. Most movies average out to average because average. Uh, Say average again. It's average. Uh, it's, you know, there's there's some good, some bad. Maybe it's more for one audience than another, that kind of thing. And then the lowest rating we can give a movie, unless you're the movie Cats, which is the one exception we've ever made, <laughs> uh, is a C- minus that is below average. Uh, those are movies that we genuinely, you know, if you ask us, see whatever you want, even if we give it a C-, <laughs> by the way. I want to make it clear, we're not yeah. telling you what to see or anything like that, but, like, if you're just asking, Bibbs, Whitney, real fast, we're- in a nutshell, what's your take? Yay or nay. C- is a nay. There you go. Yeah. Uh, on that note, and uh, unless you want to 
review them separately? Can we do the, the Roald Dahl shorts all as one well, entity? Let's, let's pretend they're like, yeah, an anthology film. Yeah, we'll just release them the same day. Because there's really just... no reason. They're, they're all so short. There's really no reason not to mainline them anyway. And also, they're all of comparable quality. Uh, they're a big old C-plus for me. Yeah, I really yeah, think yeah. that they're just... In, they're not just well-made. They're interestingly made. Yeah. Uh, they they the... capture Roald Dahl's, like, not just his prose style, not just his sense of humor, mm. but his just his unusual storytelling craft in tales that don't usually get adapted anymore. Yeah. And, and I um, really admire them a lot. And I feel like Wes Anderson, with every film here recently, he's just getting closer and closer to the kind of, like, perfect little uh, diorama aesthetic that he's all, always yeah. been so fond of. He's just getting... Uh, nailing in on something. I feel like he really turned a corner with the French dispatch. I love the French dispatch. Mm. Um, wasn't so fond of asteroid city, which came out earlier this year, but he's, like he's getting into that sort of like this kind of milky, hazy photography that makes his films feel like clean, but also vintage at the same time. Mm. Uh, yeah. And, and he's just doing it again. He's firing on all cylinders. Also here. not for nothing. I really don't think I'd ever seen Rupert friend in something. I liked him in as much as I like him in these shorts. He's great. in these. I, yeah. I don't know. Especially maybe the I, swan. it might be just one of those actors where he just happened to miss the stuff that everyone loves him in. But like every single thing, I mean, like, he's okay. He's great in these. He's like revelatory for me in these. Like I love him in these shorts. Yeah. So kudos to him as well. Um, Let's see here. Uh, I guess we dicks the musical. Uh, C plus, uh, crass, disgusting, low budget, mm. wondrous nose. Uh, okay. Uh, when evil lurks, I'm gonna give it a C. It was so close to a C plus, oh, okay. and then just it just ran out of steam and got more formulaic towards the end. But when this movie is firing on all cylinders, it's as intense as any horror movie I've seen in a really long time. Excellent. So if that sounds good to you, and if you're really interested in some unapologetic, uncompromising shocking genuinely scary violence if you're one of those horror fans who's like if it's not super extreme i'm not interested yeah don't miss this one that that one's definitely made for you but i think for for everyone else i think you can see at least a little bit of a mixed bag uh let's see uh totally killer totally killer also a c plus really really clever screenplay good warm characters just really fun slick hollywood tile type entertainments nice. oh, homage to 80s cinema in a way that feels uh, fair. Mm. Uh, let's see. Foe. Foe. C minus. Ah, bummer. What, what do I call it? Depressive faffing about. That, that's all it is. <laughs> all right. Uh, Saw X. I'm going to give it a C plus. I think this is um, one of the most efficient and effective films in the Saw series. It certainly is the one that probably works best as a standalone. Um, I think they got back to what made the series work. Uh, I think they were wise to give Tobin Bell like the lead for once and like actually try to make jigsaw like the sympathetic character yeah i think that really makes every single thing in the movie that sometimes is hard to justify feel justified uh it is it just it's just excellent pot boiler just really really good stuff love it uh let's see here uh the creator creator uh, a c minus mm. uh yeah really really great production value mm. um but yeah it's just it's not doing any anything interesting with this concepts it introduces some interesting things about ai but doesn't really do anything and then it plays with all those like kind of stereotype images that are really dragging it down and some might even find offensive that's so yeah that's a c minus it's unfortunate uh let's see here the kane mutiny court martial uh william friedkin's final film uh is excellent it is a, a just, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, me too, honestly. Like, what a, what a relief. It's, not every filmmaker gets to go out on a great one. Mm. Uh, and while this might not be, you know, up to the French Connection standards, uh, it's an excellently crafted legal thriller. 
with a really impeccable cast. A lot of people are doing, if not their best work, then their best work in years. Mm-hmm. Um, tightly crafted. It's intelligent. It's challenging. It has exactly the right ending in a way that's like I think it's going to stick with me for a long time. All right. Uh, I think it is really really truly great and i'm mad that it's just being sloughed off on the showtime not because there's any indignity in that or anything but just because it's not going to be as not, available not gonna, it's not reach the widest audience it's not going to be promoted yeah. as much it's just it's, this movie deserves a bigger audience than that so i hope people do seek it out uh and then lastly the exorcist believer also a c minus yeah. uh this it's a just a boring movie without interesting ideas. The the jump scares are all it has. Mm, and there aren't that the, many of them. There aren't that many of them. You know what? And I guess, and we didn't even say this, biggest offense, it's just not scary. Not very scary, no. Uh, no. I, I don't need to be you know, frightened to my core with every horror movie I see. I would love to be. Well, but uh, I, I would like to at least be unnerved or scared or frightened the same well, way I want to at least be... Uh, amused or laugh a little bit at a comedy. I want to be a little bit scared. I think that there's this idea that didn't do it here. I think there's this idea. By the way, I also agree. It's a C minus. It's, it's a mm. genuinely just underwhelming movie in, in almost every regard. Um, I think there's an idea that if, if a horror movie isn't scary, it's bad. Uh, fear is subjective. Mm. What terrifies one person might not terrify another. That doesn't mean you can't appreciate a movie that is going after those fears. Yeah. What The Exorcist Believer is very strange about is that. It doesn't seem to be going after any particular fears. That's why the one sequence in the movie that really, really works is the one that is a simple gut punch. Our children are missing. Yeah. That's it. All of the other stuff, the uh, supernatural horror, the uh, sort of religious implications, uh, the, the revelation that our children are demonically possessed, all of that stuff is handled with no particular consideration as to why that should unnerve us. It's just... Stuff that's happening in in sequence. Yeah, there's like a scene in the movie where like people walk into a house where something terrible has happened. That should be frightening. We should be able to put start piecing things together in our minds. It doesn't. It feels perfunctory. Mm. It's not scary because it's not about scary things. It's about the Exorcist and how we can remind you of it for the sake of justifying the four hundred million dollars we spent on buying it. Jeez. It really doesn't feel like it's about more than that, and that's such a waste of everyone's time. Talented people worked on this movie, and it just doesn't feel like you know anyone was really invested in it. And if they were, well, it did not come across, and that's a shame. Anyway, uh, that is it for Critically Acclaimed. We will be back next week with reviews of something. What comes out next week? Uh, not, the, not the new Scorsese. That's the following. No, no, no. no. Yeah. It's that Taylor Swift movie. Maybe we'll see the Taylor Swift. Maybe. maybe we will. I don't know. I haven't really. Uh, uh, I've got so much going on. <laughs> um, but we'll be back with stuff. We'll be back. Um, if you haven't uh, noticed yet on the feed, we've brought back Cancel Too Soon for this month for Scary Tober. So check back in on Wednesdays this month as we review a series of failed horror pilots that we thought were really interesting. Um, we just did one for uh, Ed Wood's failed horror anthology pilot. Uh, and we're going to have uh, one that's uh, a failed pilot for a TV series based on the Vincent Price classic horror movie, House of Wax. Fun. Cool idea. Cool idea. We'll see how it turned out. Um, with, with Tony Curtis. With Tony briefly. <laughs> in one scene. <laughs> but by God, he's in there. 
Um, anyway, uh, so that's going on as well. And of course, we've got Thank Godzilla. It's Friday every Friday. Uh, and seriously, thank you everybody for listening. Feel free to uh, email us. You want to share your thoughts on anything we discussed? Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Uh, we've got mails kind of erratic lately because we had to like sort of you know push it aside a bit to make room for all these cancel too soons, but we'll do at least one or two this month. Uh, and, um, yeah, and also we're on social media. We're at Critic Acclaim on Blue Sky and Twitter. Uh, I'm at William Bibiani. He's at Whitney Seibold. That's right. Uh, if you wanted to listen to any of our Patreon exclusive shows, or if you want to listen to shows like this one, ad free, uh, you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. A huge shout out to everybody who is subscribing. You mean the world to us. Thank you. Thank you for helping support the show. We couldn't do it without you. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?